Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode. We're going to be doing one of these this week. Why just one instead of two? Uh, There's too much to do this week. I'll just be honest with you right up front. We are coming out of back-to-back races, heading into a doubleheader on Saturday. Got a couple of long features to write along with all the other stuff going on. So going to do a bit of a longer episode here guessing two hours or so, maybe a little bit more. For those of you who prefer shorter episodes, I absolutely recommend hitting the pause button or stop button at whatever point you want. And then, hey, uh, you got more to listen to later in the week if you desire. Uh, Big thanks to you all, as usual, for sending in a ton of questions. Uh, Let's see. I believe... Almost 5,000 words worth of, you name it, great stuff coming in. We're going to get to as much as we can. I also want to say a big thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for their ongoing support of everything we do. And finally, TorontoMotorsports.com. Hopefully got a chance to stop by and see those crazy kids from Canada in the St. Petersburg paddock all kinds of swag and gear and you name it. So hope you got to go see our pal Derek Koska and also the amazing artist known as Roger Warwick and everything they did there celebrating you, celebrating us. (sighs) All right, so I'm going to jump right into your questions here in just a moment. Before I do that, we'll tell you two things, one that tickled me, one that makes me a little bit sad, but uh, not the end of the world. So, rang Colton Herta today at 11.36 a.m. There's a reason for mentioning the time. I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out to be something to write down and remember. So, when you have a race at, say, St. Petersburg in Florida, and you got somebody like Colton who lives in California, and there's a race coming up just a matter of days later, it's not uncommon for that person to either stay for a day or two, wherever they might be, Florida this case, then head over to the next race. That being at Texas this weekend, uh, not so common for them to go all the way home for just a day or two, then turn around and leave again. That's indeed what Colton did. So when I was calling him at 1136 Pacific time, I was thinking he might be East Coast time, 236 in the afternoon. Afternoon. No, he was actually in California. And why does that matter? Well, here's the part that I just found to be somewhat hilarious. Apparently, he was able to get a ride home with a friend who has a jet, got home late last night. He was sleeping at 11.36 a.m. when I called. Stone cold out. Said my call actually woke him up, which I apologized for. We had a hilarious conversation about a couple different things. Maybe you read that piece about uh, his interest in F1. But anyways, I love the fact that the guy just crushes the entire IndyCar paddock at St. Pete, gets a flight home. Obviously, it was hot, more humid, as I understand, just from driver reaction. The humidity is what did them in, but really baked and worn out after a hard day of kicking everybody's behind and slept for like, I mean, come on, 10 hours, 11 hours. The kid, and he's a kid, he's 21, is almost still asleep at noon. 
Uh, to be young and, and earmuffs here, to be young and to have the world by the balls, right? And that's what you should do. Wake up at noon after winning the race, sleeping all night. It wasn't out partying or anything, but he's just exhausted. He's like, yeah, uh, th- he actually said, well, thanks for, you know, calling. Actually, I needed to get up. I'm like, no, you didn't. You should be sleeping right now. Get up whenever you want. He's like, well, I need to go out. And, you know, he said, get whatever you would call breakfast at this hour. And I'm like, no, what you need to do is stay home, stay in your jammies, and Postmates, DoorDash, whatever, Uber Eats, you deserve to order whatever you want. Have them bring it to your dang doorstep, Colton Herta. He liked that idea. But anyways... That is the winner of round two of the 2021 NTT IndyCar Series season. The Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg snoring, sleeping his behind off until 11.36 a.m. on Monday. Uh, I, that just tickled me to no end. Last quick note here. Don't know when you might be listening to this. It happens to be Monday evening, the 26th. Tomorrow, indeed, April 27th, a day that lives in infamy in the world of IndyCar. That is the 20th anniversary of the release of the movie Driven, the worst motor racing movie ever made. Some of you might have heard me mention this on the part two of this podcast last week, but I've been working for quite some time to put together a crazy half-book-length feature on behind the scenes, the making of this movie. And it's just, we've got great stuff, but with my hard drive melting down uh, Saturday morning at uh, when practice was just about to start at Barber, all complete truth here, I didn't finish digging out of that and getting everything back that I needed until sun- this Sunday. So took me more than a week to get back and fully operational. Keep in mind of got a job to do wife and I got things to do. So just sitting around recovering from a computer crash, not something that I was able to do as quickly as I want. So the result I have failed. I do not have this oral history of the worst racing movie ever made ready to go, uh, on April 27th. So as I said in the part two last week, maybe it's perfect. Maybe it's just perfectly fitting that for a movie that failed to meet every single expectation the makers had and the IndyCar series had, maybe it's a perfect way of honoring their failures by a failure of my own. So uh, I feel bad because there's some great stuff in there from the people who contributed to it. But Sometime soon, I'll get that ready for you, and I hope you enjoy it. Other than that, I don't know. Uh, I was thinking of putting together a little podcast with some of the interviews from it, but I realized even that would be kind of half-assed. So just said, you know, I'd rather not do a little bit. I'd rather just do it properly. So (sighs) there you go. Colton Herta, 11.36 a.m., Rise and Shine, and me failing to get... The 20th anniversary of this movie uh, out and properly documented. Other than that, we're going to roll in a little bit of music bed here, and I would say, how about we get going with your questions 
that's me moving away from the microphone, having to reach over to this little poopy laptop I'm having to record on um, and say, okay, where are we going first? We're going first with some great questions on the topic of, yeah, that guy Colton Herta. You know, there are some folks who have said, boy, Sunday's race was a snooze fest. It was boring. Man, that sucked. I can't argue with your take on it. If that's how you felt, share a little bit of a counter point. Having been fortunate to watch the majority of Ayrton Senna's races in Formula One and having been a massive devotee of Senna, some of my favorite memories are of the days where he destroyed people walked off and showed everyone he was in a different world. Of course, it's amazing to think back to when he and Prost were fighting or he and Mansell or he and whomever. The wheel-to-wheel craziness, great memories there too. But the rare ones, the true rare moments in a amazing driver's career, that's when they dominate, outshine, they are, everyone else is instantly fighting over second place. While those might not be the most spectacular things to watch, if you're looking for passing and thrilling stuff at the front, would just hope that for those of you who are able to enjoy a molly whopping virtuoso type drive, this was one of them. So, no argument that up front there was nothing there. Maybe the last restart when New Garden stayed within a half second for a little while. But yeah, it wasn't that kind of race. But I would hope um, enough people can appreciate they got to see a unicorn-like performance. We don't get many of those per year. Most drivers don't get many of those in their careers, which I wrote about on Racer. But that's how I viewed things. So not saying it's the right way to view it, but that's what I was seeing. And that's what brought immense thrills, just the fan side of me as it was taking place. So on the continuing theme of Colton Herta, Damien, the IndyCar Brit says, Hey Marshall, if it wasn't for yellows, Herta might've won by 20 plus seconds yesterday. Just how highly do you rate his win? The win was amazing. I think that's overstating the obvious written it, said it, tweeted it, you named it. So the win itself was holy wow. Where I think the the slight deeper dive here is required is who Colton Herta has become at 21 years old and what, uh, 25, 26 days? I mean, he just turned 21 at the end of March. He's at this really insane place developmentally, Damien, that it's hard to to fully grasp because we haven't had enough races to see all the different ways that he is so heavily advanced at such a young age. His maturity is the biggest thing that jumps out, right? He's a carbon copy of his dad, personality-wise behind the wheel, right? Uh, he can get a little chirpy, don't get me wrong, but if we're talking blood pressure, it's it's very stable, and I would say 
he's not prone to losing it, being red faced, going off. Like he's the guy where you go like, how are you not like freaking out, popping off and showing your age? We expect this at 21 for you to be unbalanced, not completely unbalanced, but just, Hey, this is part of youth. We get older, we mature, bigger perspective, learn more ways to, to handle ourselves and adversity and whatever else. This kid's got it at 21. So that's one thing that's remarkable. Another thing here, which we've seen stronger points of evidence of this, Damien, which makes it easier to talk about, and that is his intelligence. So there have been many smart IndyCar drivers throughout the years, right? Uh, We'll look at Charlie Kimball. We look at Jer Hildebrand, and we go, wow, you guys big brains uh, Kyle Kaiser is another one of them and we could rattle on and name some more Ed Jones where Colton's intelligence is really standing out is in the learning things observing things uh, watching and spotting things and processing them and turning them into actionable performance improvements like that's that's something that warrants a lot more words a lot more research and development on that theme damien but one of colton's great great skills is his ability to get better not just through the act of driving and what he learns in that firsthand experiential uh environment but also watching. He's the guy who is constantly looking for how others do things. It could be just re-watching a race, looking at in-car footage. It could be him standing on pit lane, uh, you know, at an IMSA race, at a wherever, and just observing behaviors, choices, the drivers make like all these little bits, all the little fine points that you pick up during a career that you add to yourself, right? <sighs> Spoken about Scott Dixon as being one of the greatest, greatest uh, persons in this regard. He's a the ultimate chameleon, readily admits it, that when Dario is my teammate, man, I had some weaknesses, and I didn't pick them all up right away from him, but I observed, I practiced, and added. Dan Weldon, before that, he credits massively as being the guy who taught him so much. And these are things where I'm not talking about, hey, I see that on the data you're breaking five feet deeper into the corner. Next time out, I'm going to break five feet deeper, and boom, that's an improvement. Like, that's kind of the bread and butter ways in which drivers look at data and talk about things a little bit and figure out some of the best ways to go about each lap. I'm talking about the little items. I'm talking about the, hey, I see that they approached this aspect, whether, say, it was how they observed that a he observed a driver in, I don't know, the first round of the Firestone Fast 12 at this track charged on their brand new Firestone alternate red banded tires. 
where everyone else waited, say, one more lap to do that. There was one driver who went out and went hard right away, got that tire temperature up, and they were able to not only nail a fast lap before everyone else, but again, I'm just making up theoreticals here, but by doing that, there was something that he spotted where it gave that person a mild something of an improvement that others seem to not only miss out on, but no one else picked up on. He's the guy that's looking at that and putting that away. And the silly part is, you know, you don't see him like opening up his iPhone and going into the notes app and saying, okay, next time I need to go one lap or like, it's just absorbed and absorbed in a way where you go, you got a steel trap for a mind. How do you do that? at such a young age. Like that, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that you can just see it and retain it. And seemingly it just magically becomes part of you. This is who the guy is. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that there aren't other drivers like this. Dixon's that way. Power is that way. There are a number of drivers who are like the driver equivalent of people watchers, right? They're just always on the lookout for method and behavior and process and just trying to break down all the ways that other drivers, other teams do things and so on and so forth and find the little tiny, tiny bits that can add up to helping them. He's doing that seemingly right out of the womb and looking like he's been doing it forever. So between the maturity that has him in a like deadly effective mindset at seemingly all times, also the ability for him to constantly be finding the littlest ways of how to do things better. There's the inverse as well, Damien. All the little ways folks got things wrong could be his own team, other teams, other whatever. Could be on track noticing how someone is doing something in a different manner. Might not be like, hey, I'm following New Garden or Dixon or who you know, like giant amazing driver person, but like, hey, I followed someone who you might never really think to pay attention to and how they drive because, you know, they're kind of at the back a lot. But I saw that they did this one thing at this one corner and it blew my mind. And I'm like, why did I never think of that? And the, he then does it. And, 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 and it's that at this young age where you go, it's a rarity. It's a true rarity, Damien. So, you take those two things and you bolt them into a talent level that we still have yet to fully explore. You know, it, it it's, I don't know how deep his ocean goes, right? We say similar things and I'm not comparing him to Max Verstappen in terms of talent or achievement, right? But we do hear the same things about Max, He's been doing F1 for a little while now, but he's still young enough to where you can't say he's reached 99.8% of his peak. Like this kid keeps pulling out stuff where you go, whoa, (laughs) what? Okay. Wow. All right. We got to recalibrate. No, we still don't know how good he can be. We have to say the same thing about Colton. And that's just 
wacky. <laughs> you just don't see this at such a young age. Uh, it, that's the part that uh, I hope folks just continue to receive and appreciate Damien. His Indie Lights teammate, Pato Award, I'd put him in the same general hemisphere of it seems like there's only more for Pato to achieve. There's We couldn't even begin to pretend how deep that well of talent goes within him. Don't know if I'd make the same claim about maturity. Don't know if I would say he is as professorial in searching that endless quest for all the different ways that he could get better and then immediately incorporate it to his benefit. A lot of, every, every driver is looking for ways to improve. Not all those drivers are looking as hard or as in many places. Not all of them are able to take those things and turn them into habitual practices right away and get better right away. Uh, it's, you know, think, I know I use basketball references somewhat frequently. Uh, lucky with our home area Golden State Warriors. I get to watch Stephen Curry play every game, just watching TV at home. It's incredible. And he's one of hundreds of basketball players. Every single one of those players shoots the basketball. Some are really meant to do it more than others, but every single person in that league holds that basketball during a game at some point and aims it at the basket and throws it towards the basket. They've all seen this guy shoot the way he shoots. Do they? You could break down the mechanics and repeat it exactly, and yet nobody can match or even pretend to do what he does because he is so unique. He's able to constantly innovate and improve, find little tweaks and improvements to keep separating himself from the others, keep adding, right? Not saying Colton Herta is Steph Curry, but there's some similarities in their talent level and their working habits that put them in a place where you go, yeah, that's 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 ridiculous. So, no, not saying he's better or above any of the seriously established stars, but man, if he's doing that this at the age of 21 i don't where do, what are we talking about when he's 25 <laughs> i mean it's just nuts uh daniel ingleton i love this observation of yours because it it this is the constantly searching for ways to get better side where you can't be super enamored with yourself and that's colton is not prone to like thinking he's the best and awesome uh, I mean, he's got plenty of confidence, but he's certainly not someone who just lives in his own head as being amazing. You raise a great point of next evolution areas. He says, brilliant victory. However, after his four wins to date, he only has one other podium. What does he need to develop to get that week-in, week-out consistency to guarantee being a major title player? Love this question. Go through this a little bit quickly. Last year, as we know, Colton finished third in the standings, directly behind Joseph Newgarden, directly behind Scott Dixon. 
We know that Andretti had a not great year as a whole. Colton separated himself from the rest of his teammates. He was the only one that was really consistent throughout the year. Had a couple of bad races. Iowa, obviously, if not for Iowa, you know, he might be closer to second in the standings. Who knows if he could go higher. But terrible weekend at Iowa really hurt things for him. But regardless, he was the most consistent driver in a team that was completely inconsistent barring him um i hear you and what you're saying about the podiums and I, and i don't disagree at all in his first full year with andretti year before was with harding steinbrenner racing andretti affiliated totally get it but some some differences we know in 2019 they were constantly worried about i don't know uh shutting down due to lack of funding some pretty big concerns to acknowledge here in his rookie season. But if we just go back to last year quickly, Daniel, we got to say, hey, opens the year with seventh. I'm just looking now. Uh, heads to IMS, fourth. A pair of fifths at Road America. Terrible weekend at Iowa, pair of 19th. Comes back uh, eighth at Indy. Uh, fourth at Gateway, sixth at Gateway in the doubleheader there, ninth at Mid-Ohio, uh, round one, wins the second round, comes back uh, at IMS and is fourth, uh, finishes second as a part of the whatever Harvest Grand Prix doubleheader, and then a not-so-great 11th at St. Petersburg. But if I look at the 14 races that he completed and say, yeah, we get to rattle off Numbers like four five five four one four two. I'm not mad at that. I totally agree that there should be some more podiums for him, but I would also say that in a year where he was the only one that wasn't having a lot of struggles, I think he did about as well as we could have expected on many occasions. Not all. Again, there, there's some mistakes in there. There's some bad luck in there. But I think you have to look at last year and the bigger picture of where Andretti Autosport was and realize that, wow, this guy showed that he was able to get more than anyone there, and it was often extremely good. Rarely, though, was he or the team in the hunt for a real, real win. So uh, two podiums last year, one of them being a victory. Um, I'm still pretty confident in that. I, I don't know if inconsistency is what comes to mind when I'm talking about quality top six performances. He's had a lot, had a lot of those last year. Uh, in his rookie year, again, talking about some rookie stuff, made some big mistakes here and there, won two races, though. One of them totally dominant. The other one a bit fortunate to open, right? It, circuit of the Americas. But... Yeah, you know, it, it seemed like it took him about half a year to settle down and, and figure things out a little bit. Uh, you then look at the second half of the season, and you go, you know, Road America 8th, Toronto 7th, Iowa 18th, Mid-Ohio 8th, Pocono 16th. Okay, again, you know, his oval record has not been incredible. That That's really, I would say, one key area he's yet to prove that he's all the way there. Then also look at ninth at Gateway, fourth at Portland, first at Laguna. You know, we're talking about a guy with 
not a lot of IndyCar races on his resume. Was able to get to third in the standings last year with only one victory. Again, maybe that's the the summation here, Daniel. He finished third in the standings with only one victory to his credit. Um, If you look at those who were ahead of him in the championship, uh, that Scott Dixon guy uh, won four. Joseph won four. Uh, He was third with one. We're just talking racking up a lot of points. I realize that he was a decent distance back from those two in the standings, uh, just in, you know, points hall. But maybe that's something that uh, we should also give to him in terms of credit. Uh, We're going to wind down the Colton talk here and move on in just a sec. Our pal Jamie Rowe says, uh, seen Mario about wanting Colton to go to F1. Says with the expansion to a second U.S. race in Miami, do you think F1 wants an American IndyCar driver like Colton? And you think uh, he would go if it wasn't, say, a Mercedes or a Red Bull? I mean, you'd have to think Formula One as a whole would be very smart to want an American. They're not exactly dictating who's in what ride, or to my knowledge, and this may be dreadful ignorance, I'm unaware of them coming out of pocket to put driver X in whatever current seat in F1. So I just don't quite see the, we're going to put an extra car in the grid in America to have this young kid drive it. Even if it wasn't one of the top two teams, yeah. there's part of me, bigger part of me that thinks Colton would turn it down instantly because the thought of doing a one-off is a little bit of a sideshow. How often does that play to your favor? You know, we're not talking about a sideline Nico Hulkenberg who hasn't driven in, you know, a little while gets the call up to deputize at uh force stroll and wows everybody and holy cow. Um, you know, this would be a guy in theory who might be making his Formula One debut. So, you know, I, I think you just have to be realistic. He and his dad are not like big dreamer types. They're super, let's live in reality. And so if it was part of something bigger, I think he might be interested. But if it was just a, yeah, you'll get a little bit of testing, but show up, do this one race in an extra car uh, for somebody Mercedes isn't going to do it. Red Bull's not going to do it. Ferrari's not going to do it. Um, I don't think Aston Stroll is going to. So, you know, I don't know if McLaren would. McLaren might be the only one. They they always seem up for some sort of fun. If the rules even allow you to run a third car, I think I may be over missing the biggest point. I don't believe F1 says, yeah, just show up with an extra one. Anyways, barring kicking someone out of a seat for a race, which that would only happen with a tail end team. Um, I just don't see how that would work. Love the idea. Obviously. I mean, if we go back in time, of course there were always, you know, one off or, or North American only appearances by a lot of drivers. That was the culture and it was awesome. It's no longer the culture. So I just, from an operational standpoint, Jamie, I don't know how that would happen. Uh, but of course they'd be wise to do it. Uh, our man, Jim Kaiser, who puts together our Q&A list, just leaves us with this beautiful haiku, as he always does. Young Mr. Herta is making a fan of me. 
dude flat out wheels it. Jim's from California, too. You can tell with the dude thrown in there. That was a giveaway, Jim. Uh, let's do one of my favorite things on this show. Doesn't happen every week. I hope that it happens every week. Doesn't happen every week, though. But that's when we have a first-time questioner. That is Alexander Shepard. How you doing, Alexander? Really do appreciate you uh, joining in here. He says, MP, long-time listener, first-time commenter. Says, I'm really glad to see AJ Foyt. Sebastian Bourdais running well together to start the season. Says, while I didn't have him as a favorite to win St. Pete, I figured he would have finished a little better than 10th given his qualifying position and past successes at the track. Where is he most likely to win this year? Um, I'll take that one first. You got a couple other quick little things. Uh, I sent our man Bourdais a note last night. Just, again, this is friend to friend, not journalist monkey and driver monkey just saying hey you know uh, happy for you proud to see you out there fighting even through some adversity to i know 10th isn't the thing that a four-time champion dreams of but considering the team he's driving for that's in a massive rebuild mode it's still a really good result and he just you know uh seb's not a guy who you're gonna cheer up if he feels like Things could have gone a little bit better, but um, made that mistake on the opening lap, got in the back of one of the Penske cars, uh, busted open the nose a little bit, the hashtag front nose. Um, You know, things didn't exactly go wonderfully from there, but still uh, qualified fifth, finished 10th, finished fifth or whatever it is at um, Barber, and is seventh in the championship. So my biggest hope as a friend, Alexander, not as a reporter, that guy is impartial, but as a friend, I'm really hoping things go well for him and the team at Texas. Their test recently wasn't everything they had hoped for. Uh, If they can come out of Texas with just two good results, uh, maybe it's another, maybe it's a pair of tenths. I don't know. Um, if they can just come home with two finishes and they're semi-decent, don't even have to be great, I would consider that to be a big, big victory. Um, getting into the month of May, heading to the Indy Road course, then the Indy 500, Seb's excellent on both. Uh, I like I like the idea of all that. The fan hopes that it happens the hamburger to his french fry hopes that happens um where is he likely to win this year i mean i could easily see that at a long beach i could see that at maybe a a nashville he's really good on street courses uh that's obvious the i mean honestly i could see it happening happening at a lot of places um, if we had some more bullring ovals, uh, I would I would put them in there for sure. Uh, by more, I mean any, I guess. Um, I mean, again, Detroit, I can see it happen at a lot of places. It's actually not something I, I would say, oh, boy, uh, there's only one that comes to mind, Alexander. And if it isn't there, it's not going to happen. I can see it happening at probably like half the places we have left to go. Um, 
Let's see. You also mentioned where's Jack Harvey most likely to get his first win since the uh, Meyer Shank racing team seems so close to victory lane. They do, don't they? Uh, the only thing that seems to be a little bit of the question mark that we hope gets erased is race days, strategy, the strategery side. There just seem to be a few too many times where things start off well and then go backwards. And I'm limiting this specifically, Alexander, to the good days. Of course, that great podium at uh, the IMS Road Course a couple years ago, amazing. But just saying, of the general memories that are I have, there may be a few too many where it's like, oh, hey... They're in for something good. Well, hey, well, how'd you end up four spots back from there? Because that's kind of not what you'd wanted. I don't, you know, that's, again, a generalism. Just seems that that's a trend that needs to get broken. So the being close, but uh, things go a little bit sideways during the race. Before I'd say victory lane's going to open up for them, I think that's that's an area that needs further development. How do we not go for the early window of pit strategy, trying to do something a little different or special? Or, hey, what about, why did we roll the dice here? Of course, you roll those dice hoping they come up an amazing, amazing fortune for you. I just say that I would love to see maybe a little bit more normalcy. All right, we're not gambling. We're going to look. Penske doesn't win a lot of races because they just say, F it, (laughs) Pushing, pushing everything in, and we're putting everything on this one wacky bet. Uh you don't see that a lot from the teams that win on a consistent basis. So maybe that's an area for a small challenger team to just develop a little bit more. So uh, not quite ready to uh, to pick where and when it might happen. Uh, you also said, what are the first-time winners do you think we're going to see this season? Uh, also offers a kind best wishes to myself and my wife, and I assume the cats as well. Uh, None of them here for this recording, by the way. Uh, Let's see. Where do we go? Where do we go next on that question? I think I answered a lot of these in terms of who I thought might be first-time winners this year, Alexander. Let me crack open the list in front of me of the old drivers so I don't completely forget uh, what I'm thinking here. Do you think Scott Dixon might become a first-time winner? Okay, at least this season. Sorry about that. What about Joseph Newgard? Do you think that guy has any chances in IndyCar? I'm not sure. Uh, All right, well, Pelot obviously covered that off. I'm running up the list here. Uh, i got to believe Felix Rosenquist has another win in him this year. Alexander, I know that wouldn't be his first, but, oh, boy, Um, he needs some sort of tonic or salve or whatever. Uh, to, yeah, boy, I, I'd hate how his season has started. Mentioned before that Dale Coyne's strategery trickery can often 
pull some major ones. Was talking with someone today about uh, Carlos Grumpy Cat Huertas being a one-time IndyCar winner, thanks to uh, Dale's strategy call. Uh, feels like Romain Grosjean could be a one-time winner this year, and whether it's Dale's strategy or just him continuing to be awesome uh, as he picks up more experience, gets the flow and understanding in how certain drivers drive, who's going to dive bomb, who's not, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like Romain could pick one up uh, this year, so that'd be a first for him. There's absolutely no way, famous last words, no way we get through the end of the season, Alexander, without Pato Ward winning his first race. Um, I feel like Marcus Erickson could win one. I feel like Renus VK could win one. So those would be three first-time winners. I th- that's what comes to mind. Um, I Yeah, I don't know if Scotty McLaughlin's going to get there, and it's not because I doubt him, just... I don't have enough of a read. Uh, and so I hope that he wins. I hope that he calls and says, you four-letter word that starts with a C and ends with another letter and roasts me and gets me banned from ever going into a Bed Bath & Beyond, although I don't think I've ever actually been in one, but... I would not be surprised if Scott won a race this year. I'm just not ready to say I think it's going to happen because I just want to see a little bit more. He's He has looked like this is as tough as he, is, as he expected now that he's, I know it's three races total, but two races into his proper rookie season. Um, it looks like this is just as big of a leap as he knew it would be um, so I wonder if this year is just going to be one that is chalked up to more of a learning endeavor, uh, while I could see a little bit of luck and maybe closer just because he's got a thousand F1 races under his belt, a little bit closer to just earning one in Groschamp. Pato, come on. I mean, right. Hello. Uh, that should be uh, a done deal soon. And yeah, that Ericsson guy, I, I think there's something there as well. So, Renus, you know, the Carpenter team hasn't won in a long time. I know this kid, if he keeps performing at this place that he's at right now and keeps picking up, and we aren't talking about more big crashes, but just more consistent and solid stuff, I got to believe there are going to be some other teams that are interested in him. Um, I think if he goes out and wins a race this year, I think the calls are going to pick up for sure. So I love where we're at. I think that's the answer overall. We should absolutely have a number of first-time winners this year, adding to Polo. And, man, uh, I can't wait for those races to get here. Uh, We're going to go to Joey of the Priuses. What's the reason for St. Pete being reduced to 100 laps again this year? I don't know, Joey. I could have asked some people, but I didn't, and they're all asleep right now. So I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to go to a little bit of the RG Bargy. Let's go to Tony Chef 20. What are your thoughts on Takuma Sato St. Pete? Clearly he was uh, on and was one of the biggest movers in the race, but had a controversial pass on Hinch, who doesn't exactly seem happy about it. Yeah, uh, 
I love when we know Takuma is in the race. Last year, I think, I haven't done the accounting, but I think informally, maybe my pal Daniel Summersgill can go back and count. In the post-race rewind columns that I did, I think he was the clear winner of the Mr. Invisible Award, the guy who was at the race but not necessarily in the race. I love it when Takuma's out there doing Takuma things. Yeah. Sometimes those Takuma things involve using other cars to get around corners, uh, and if not uh, help take the position from that driver. It's one thing to pass a driver. It's another thing to kind of knock that driver out of contention to get that position. So, you know, Takuma's a two-time Indy 500 winner. That's the thing that hopefully will stand as the greatest memory of his time in IndyCar. He's also not always the cleanest of performers. So, yeah, as I wrote, I enjoyed watching it, but I wasn't the guy getting hit and having my day ruined like Hinch. So, not out of character. We've seen this story before. Probably seen more episodes of this story where he takes himself out and... Maybe that's the more accepted episode here, Tony Chef 20, which is, A, when Takuma makes a mistake, it's often at his own expense. Not always. He, you know, he's invited a number of others into those mistakes. But for a guy like Hinch who came off a season opener that was the opposite of awesome and was doing okay, uh, but hoping for better in the race and then to have that hope dashed fairly soon. And I, I don't know if I would say there's a lot to blame Hinch about there. There's always the folks who say, oh, well, he saw him company coming. He should have just opened up his hands on the steering wheel and gave him room. The people who say that are not race car drivers. The people who say that have no grasp of what <laughs> a competitive person in a motor racing vehicle thinks or behaves like and the thought of like oh well clearly you should just take everything from me and i should just let you have it with ease yeah that's not how they work um and it's not as if hinch had blown something to be way off and it was just a oh my gosh you know come charging past uh why did you bother even putting up a fight it's totally your fault because everything was lost and, and you overfought. wasn't that case uh whatsoever so yeah um at the same time tony chef one race uh not great not happy for hinch obviously but not the end of the world. It has happened, you know, a zillion times before. It'll happen a zillion times more. And, eh. Uh, Peter Santi, continue on the theme. What was your take on the Hinch and Sato routine? We covered that off. It says, but, and the Rossi-Rayhall incidents during the St. Pete race. The commentators seem to indicate both are racing incidents, but perhaps Hinch and Rossi turned in, uh, and Rossi turned into or pinched the other car. Could their incidents be an indication of them pushing too hard? 
So where the Hinch and Sato contact took place, we've seen contact happen there many, many times. Wider stretch of road, though. So when contact happens there, it tends to be the person charging down the inside, going too far before they break, clipping the curb on the inside and and losing traction. There's some sort of sliding into type arrangement that happens there. With the Rossi and Rahal one, a little bit different. And this is where, uh, just stay for just a second, Peter. Uh, We've seen that same clash a zillion times at turn four. So again, nothing new at all. Like, why don't we have a ready-made highlight reel? of when a turn one clash happens, Hinch and Sato run the tape. We don't have tape anymore. Run the digital and show the 30 other times it's happened or whatever over the last decade. Why don't we have one? You know, these things happen at certain, at specific corners, these two specific corners at St. Pete so often that like we should just have them ready to go every time. Where the turn four incident between Rossi and Ray Hall it's a little bit of a different deal is Hinch didn't need to concede anything. Uh, it, he, I don't think he did anything to pinch Sato down uh, and cause that. I just saw it as Sato being not totally in control and Hinch paid the price. But there was no need for Hinch to alter his driving line, his behavior, whatever. Uh, unfortunately, he paid the price for someone else's mistake. Rossi and Ray Hall, that's a unique one because provided you see someone is going to try and pass you anywhere other than under straight line breaking into turn four at the end of that long back straight. Anytime you see a pass attempt get pulled and it's not under breaking, and the driver on the outside sees that passing attempt is about to happen, and you're starting to turn, it instantly becomes a requirement for the driver on the outside about to be passed to agree to be passed and then react with the steering wheel to give enough room so that it can happen without contact. Some might think, well, wouldn't that be the smart thing? Let's go back to the nature of a race car driver. Most are not wired to concede anything. The deal that we see happen at turn four quite often is a late, I don't know if I want to say dive bomb because that implies just, random chaos and a big hit and explosion and, you know, uncontrolled madness. But a dive bomb in terms of, hey, we've kind of gotten the braking phase done, which is over in an instant, and we're turning in and, and pointing towards the apex of the corner, and boom, you pull out because you see a little bit of space or hope there is. Hope I'll see you, and then I'll kind of open up steering wheel a little bit, move over to the left and let you through. Like, there's... I think there's that, actually.
actually. I think there's a big exhale by the driver seeing they're about to be passed. And again, I'm not talking about the two people fighting over 20th place. I'm talking about, you know, a Rossi and a Ray Hall fighting over a competitive position uh, in the race. I think there's a bit of an exhale that comes each time on that kind of outside driver going, oh, man. All right. So if I want to ensure that we both get through here cleanly, I need to surrender. I need to steer away from you and give you the space to get by me safely, not hit me, potentially hit you. If whether you hit me or I, however it, there's a hit and it's probably going to do something bad and ruin our chances of winning. (sighs) These outside drivers at turn four are effectively forced Peter into this instantaneous thing, right? We're talking a split second where they're having to process all of this. See it in the mirror. Go try and judge where am I on track? How much have I turned? Where are they? Is there enough space for them to get by? Again, the answer is pretty much always no. If I just hold my line and they still are trying to come through, is there a chance they could back out and let me go? Or if they come into me and hit my side pot a little bit, maybe I could get away with that. And it, you know, it might bust it up a little bit, but it's wheel to wheel contact usually is going to send you around. So maybe that, uh, you know, running the odds in an instant, it's a 62 second lap around there. I mean, this stuff is over in an instant. You look in the mirror, you see, you go, Oh my God, what the hell am I supposed to do? Uh, what should I do? Well, Hey, I don't want to give him the spot. I'm want to win the race or I want to win as much as I can in whatever position I come home. I don't want you to take this space, but you've just decided to do this. So if I don't instantly kind of move over a bit, give you room, let you do this, let you go by, we might hit, we probably will hit. Why did you just do that to me? I don't want you to have this position. I also don't want to get wrecked, but I'm probably going to get yelled at if I just get pull if I just pull over and let you go by. That's not why they pay me. That's not what my sponsor said. Hey, Alexander, if anyone challenges you hard, just pull over and wave them by. That's what we want from you. I mean, it's a lot. So this particular corner, Peter. Oh, it screws your head. So all these things, some of those things, going to go through a driver's mind in an instant. All while thinking, this is one corner in a track on this lap, and holy cow, now this person's made me decide whether I want to fight them and not let them go by, which is my natural instinct, or have to mentally lay down and just truly pull over to the left so you don't wreck me or I reduce the odds of you wrecking me. And that's just not natural. And so it's real easy to blame the person trying to make the pass. You know, a lot of times the person trying to do that overtake maneuver, eh, there's some hope, if not a lot of hope involved. That's never a good thing, right? I hope I get by you, but I've made the decision to do it, and I can't really stop it. So if you don't help me pass you, we're both going to be in trouble. 
I think Rossi did his as much as he was comfortable doing, and it still wasn't enough. I haven't spoken with him, but just watching it, it's what it kind of looked like. You know, he and Graham aren't grumpy at one another. They're friends. Um, I don't think Rossi sees Ray Hall where he might see some other drivers and say, F you, never is this happening. But at the same time, again, the guy's out there trying to win for his team as best he can. So that's where this is just a lot different. Turn four, St. Pete, every year we see this once, twice, three, five, I don't know how many times. Each version's a tiny little bit different of when the driver does that last second ducking out and trying to outbreak and get by into the through the corner and come out the other side. And they often have the same result. Um, it's just a weird thing, though, where the driver getting past has to run through, you know, a ton of scenarios in their mind, maybe quiet their inner lion and hope that things work out, but they don't often do. So uh, for me, at least, it's a fascinating study every year to see how folks deal with it. Um, There we go. Uh, Grant Stouter says, so after this weekend, who would win in a no-holds-bar match, a cage match between Ray Hall, Edelman, Lanigan, or Andretti Autosport? Uh, Seems like they keep running into each other, and with a particularly interesting outburst on social media, Seems like there's a genuine dislike fomenting between the two outfits. First of all, Grant, you win the question of the episode because you use the word fomenting. So, uh, hey, seriously, awesome right there. You is good with words. Should I just go with the obvious answer of there's four Andretti cars and four Andretti Cruise versus two with RLL. Uh, I would not want to be in a no holds barred cage match with uh, double the amount of people coming at me. So that's one. What if it were the drivers though? Right? Is that what you're referring to? I don't know, but we're going to pretend you are. Uh, Takuma Sato is not a man of verticality. He is built like a brick, though, and. I don't know if he's a fighter, but he strikes me as someone who, if he got like mini Hulk raging mad, could probably put in some pretty good work on whomever. Uh, Graham, who I... Part of me wonders, is Graham a a little bit like Bob Odenkirk's character in that new movie, Nowhere? Nobody? No, nowhere. Jesus. Uh... Nobody, I think that's the name of it, right? The guy you look at, very unassuming, doesn't seem like the type who could go nuclear and, you know, wipe out an army. But when he goes nuclear in the mind, he can do it. I mean, Graham's, you know, tall, big-ish guy, 6'3-ish, 6'4", whatever. I just, and I know he can get mad. I know he can get mad. Trust me, he's let me know when I've made him mad. Um I just don't know if he's a fighter. I, I, I eh, right. Uh, I, I think of the, the proverbial biker guys. You know, I think of a Harley rider as someone who'd be more disposed to fighting than the, the Ducati aficionado total stereotyping here. I may be a thousand percent wrong. Ray Hall may have a 
big old punch waiting for my nose when I see him next time. It'd be kind of funny. Um, he just doesn't strike me as the throwing bows kind of guy. Pushing, barking, coming up with some good one-liners that might actually make you laugh a little bit. Yeah, but like throwing bows, I think Takuma between those two would be the one who could handle his business. Switch over to the Andretti side. We're just going to have a mission of mercy for Colton Hurd. Love the kid. He weighs 82 pounds, right? That's just not him. He's truly a lover. Zero fighter. Uh, too smart as well. Come on. Um, Hinch. I don't know how much he weighs. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. But yeah, he's not a fighter. <laughs> that leaves Alexander Rossi. I don't know if he can fight. He does have an athletic build. He's tallish, right? Six one, six two, whatever it is. Um, we know he can get mad, I, but I could see him giggling a little bit, like him with boxing gloves on, or I don't know, maybe no boxing gloves, hands taped up. You know, how many punches to the face is he going to want to take? Is maybe where I, I lean with Alexander, but I, I do think he could absolutely like do the Odenkirk nobody thing and like you stand and go well you killed everybody alex um that wasn't very nice and he says sorry um my bad yeah i could still see that hunter ray i don't know uh hunter ray you know he's got the amazing wife amazing kids he's you know out on the boat catching fish and just live you know all those great things we maybe have forgotten that that dude comes from scrappy, scrappy place. And I, I don't know if I'd want to get him totally mad. So between the two, the thought of Rossi and Hunter Ray, both six, one, six, two, pretty decent build going up against six, three, six, four Ray Hall, similar build, but I don't know. If he's really going to be all in there, um, really, I think it ended up being Sato versus Rossi and Hunter Ray. And I mean, look, there's a reason why they have uh, weight divisions in boxing and MMA. And, you know, the weight kind of gives you a general idea of the size of the person fighting. Like, you know, there's no six foot eight straw weights, right? Um, I just think like in a no holds barred cage match. And I, I don't know if you're referring to WWE, but I'm just going a little bit more real combat sports. I think grant, Oh, it's a bad day for RLL. Now, granted, if we're talking about some of the mechanics, uh, yeah, I think that might be a more even match. Uh, There are some folks on RLL who I don't really pretend to know them, but I look at them and go mental note. Oh, make that person mad at you. All right, we're going to go to a couple more items here. Funny how we should do that. This is what we do every week. Uh, Should I just stop here, by the way, and say I love doing the show. I appreciate, I really do. When I say I appreciate you all, I'm greatly, greatly thankful for all the questions you send in. I say that every week, but it's it's not written down on a list that I must do it. It's just because I feel it every week. 
So I say that, and I really, really do appreciate you. So I love doing the show, so I'm going to keep doing it. So we're going to go to our pal Jerry Sudduth, who says, Yesterday we saw a couple of valve stems get knocked off after contact. Is it possible to move the stem to avoid this in the future? Uh, Matt McDonald, similar, says, All the best you and your wife and the kitties. Thank you. Uh, it says, Related to Jerry's question. Look at that. You're, you're referencing another question. I love it. He tells more about the wheel options available to teams and advantages and disadvantages and why some teams might prefer one over another. Uh, is that an open area of development? Let me go backwards here uh, with Matt. You mentioned the open development area. I don't think so. Uh, I don't know if IndyCar has gone as far to restrict the number of vendors uh, in terms of who you can buy wheels from, whose wheels you can use. I would just say that the predominant uh, vendors, and they've been the really about the de facto options for a pretty long time now, uh, that would be BBS. That happens to be the brand that we see on Andretti Autosports cars pretty much at all times, I believe. And the other is OZ. And between the two... The OZs uh, are the ones with the uh, the aero rim, uh, rim, good lord, uh, the aero flange on the outside of the wheels. So, generically called the aero wheels. Those are those are something. So, a couple quick notes which might feed upwards a little bit to Jerry's question, and I know there are some others who asked about this as well. So we had two significant wheel-to-wheel contacts at St. Pete where Andretti Autosport cars using those BBS wheels got hit. Got it. On both of those cars, that being Hinch and Rossi, weird how the two guys on a rival podcast were taken out. Is there something else going on here in podcast world? Did I pay off both Sato and Ray Hall? No comment. Was it uh, their super producer's fault? Did I pay him off to then go pay off Sato and Ray Hall? Was it an RLL fix to take out Super Producer Thims to Andretti Auto Sport podcast hosts. Hmm, curious minds want to know, and I am not spilling the beans. By the way, check your PayPal, Thim. I believe I finally sent that money through. So, <coughs> I don't know why I keep talking in that voice because it's making me cough. Here's the thing to know. And I did actually reach out to uh, a couple of friends in the old IndyCar paddock after seeing your question come through. Um, I didn't see yours, Joey. That's why I don't have an answer for the lap count. But, hey, you know I suck, but you continue to send in questions. So I believe you just accept my limitations. A couple just, I don't know if they're interesting, but they're things. So the aero wheels, beautiful things. Been around for quite a while. That lip that you see, that flange, that flat surface, is known to be something that offers a bit of an aerodynamic efficiency gain. 
I would say if we're talking the environment where those gains are seen uh, in the most demonstrative ways, well, obviously we'd be talking about a super speedway in Indianapolis 500 or similar. Some will tell you that, you know, these are just things that we have been told and know to be true and we're confident uh, teams have done back-to-backs testing in wind tunnels and so on and so forth. I think you have some teams that probably just saw those OZs, saw the uh, the arrow wheels and said, oh, well, uh, that sure looks more aerodynamically good than wheels without them. Uh, let's get those. Uh, if anything, it's not going to hurt, right? You also have some other teams who have been longstanding uh, users of our good fine friends at BBS. And now again, I'm not saying there's any massive anything to, to talk about here other than vendor preference is certainly something we should not overlook, right? For those who have been working with OZ for a long time, you're going to find them working with OZ today. For those who have been working with BBS for a long time, similar thing. Why do I say that? Why is that a bit of an obvious thing that I'd get into? Well, here's one of the reasons to consider. Why would a team use one over the other? At whatever point, a team, those teams, etc., decided to go with a BBS, well, if we look at Andretti Autosport, a BBS team, uh, we would say that, boy, they sure have a lot of cars. Oh, they have. (laughs) They have a lot of cars. And what does that mean? Well, they've had to buy wheels for them. How many wheels? Oh, a lot. And so if we think about, okay, today, yeah, all right, fair enough. You know, it's a four-car full-time team. Sure. What about when we get to the speedway? Yeah, that becomes like six, seven, you know, more, a lot. You then start to think about, well, how many sets of wheels do you need during the Indy 500? Yeah, you need a fair amount, right? Uh, There's obviously running back and forth and, you know, Firestone's doing wheel mounting and whatnot, but for the most part, uh, you need a lot of set of wheels. And so you multiply that times five, six entries. You go, okay, how many sets are we going to use in the race? We're going to use a lot. Uh, How many cars do we have? You start to run the numbers and you realize you own a lot of very expensive pieces of metal. You have made that commitment to the brand that you work with and over time that volume of wheels purchased and used used it is very significant another just quick little thing to throw in you know just trying to run through the the things that make a lot of sense so just about every component on an indy car has a limited lifespan so these some of these things could be in the thousands of miles some of them could be far fewer wheels fit into that category um so not saying that the bbs wheels that an andretti autosport bought in 2008 or whatever are still in service today but nonetheless there's still a a fairly constant effort to freshen the stock especially obviously when uh, wheels are lifed out you have the crashes that tear up wheels you need to order some more 
you just look at the overall number in inventory and realize that if you decided overnight, hey, we're going to switch to OZ, yeah, that's a frightening amount of money. So why wouldn't an Andretti Autosport go with the OZ if a lot of the other teams are using OZs? Kind of coming back to that, well, this is who they've been riding with for a while, and buying their way out of it would be pretty darn hard at this stage. Not impossible, just not super easy. Um, I mean, the BBSs as well. Maybe I should have mentioned this towards the front. Um, rear wheels, they have the uh, the arrow wheel treatment at the rear, um, not on the fronts. And if I'm forgetting a point in time where they have, then that's just me forgetting. But where the OZs do stand out is they are arrow, they're arrow, arrow. And there you go. Uh, you are looking at the front. You are looking at the back. And you are seeing that arrow lip uh, on all of them, front and back. No question, no difference, no separation. No, 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 no. So where this becomes a little bit interesting, another little sub note possibly, it's that I have heard more than once and recall back in the day when I was an IndyCar mechanic, engineer, whatever, supply in general for the OZs at times has not always been the most favorable, easiest thing in the world. So I'm not claiming that this is a constant problem. I'm absolutely not. I'm just saying I know I've heard on more than multiple occasions that, yeah, hey, well, we're really not wanting to tear up any wheels right now. Not really going out with a plan to tear up wheels, but we're really not wanting to uh, do anything to jeopardize our stockpile because, for whatever reason, there just aren't uh, as many readily available. Another thing, too, maybe to close on this, on the why wouldn't every team use the OZs, why wouldn't every team have the arrow wheels front and rear at every race, there's a known cost difference between the BBSs and the OZs. And while I don't remember the number, I know that while speaking with a couple of friends today on the subject, uh, they all mentioned, yes, <laughs> uh, one is certainly going to cost you less than the others. And then you multiply that by a lot of cars and a lot of sets. And it's definitely a bigger investment, a, a real and serious thing to consider if you're going to go all OZ, all arrow wheels at all times. Now you close that with, well, did we just see it St. Pete with two cars? And one of those friends today said, didn't that happen last year at St. Pete with Marco too? Which I think it might have. Uh, why wouldn't you go to OZs on the street courses where we see more contact taking place in things like we see at turn one and turn four at St. Pete? Uh, why wouldn't you make that adjustment there? Got to admit, it's maybe a question the Andretti team would ask themselves, especially when we're talking about valve stems being knocked off on the uh, BBSs. So why? I think we I think we got a pretty good grasp on why there's the difference. I, I liken it a little bit to, just from my end as well, as a photographer, 
I've seen some friends go from being Canon people to Nikon people or vice versa. I've even known some to go away from one, then come back. And I'm always amazed by those people. I know how much these things cost. I know how long it took me to assemble a full kit of camera gear. I mean, it took me a decade. Yeah, I mean, no complaints here. It's just, you know, most people don't become racing reporters because it pays millions. So I know how much this stuff costs. It's silly. And so when I hear someone say, oh, hey, I like the new Nikon better. Uh, I'm going to get rid of my Canon gear and switch over to Nikon. My mind goes like, holy wow, we're not just talking about you're buying the new body. It's all the lenses you got to buy. And, oh, man, how much, you know, 20, 30 grand, if not more, uh, to switch over. And I, I marvel at those people who can afford to do that. Of course, they sell their stuff and they get whatever amount that they can, but it's still a big investment. And so I, I maybe think of the same thing here of the, look, I've been riding with Canon since I was, uh, before I even became a mechanic, uh, 86, I think is when I bought my first Canon stuff. Uh, maybe the new Nikon or whatever else is better. I could not dream of staring at all the stuff that I have, getting rid of it and trying to repopulate it with Nikon stuff without, I've already sold a kidney, arm, leg, and an eye, and whatever else to recover from this laptop crash. I don't know how much else I have to sell, but maybe a little bit of a parallel there with the, wow, if you're fully invested in the BBS side, uh, yeah, there's probably some pretty good reasoning to maybe consider getting to OZ, but maybe you do baby steps. Maybe you consider street courses as the place where you roll that out and slowly add over time. Man, it would not be cheap to uh, do it all at once. Uh, where are we going next? Damien, the IndyCar Brit, hold on. You seem like someone who asked a question just a little while ago, but we love that in the show, especially when they're great questions. It says, we're seeing a few drivers end up with bad blisters after races this season. Is this usual? It says, I know it used to happen when the cars had uh, gear sticks, but that's decades ago now. Uh, is anyone looking at a way to prevent them? Great question, Damien. Absolutely nothing new. Uh, the photos of the, I mean, I took some of them, uh, standing at the podium drivers coming off afterwards after Houston street course or this or that, you know, uh, seven, eight years ago. And before that high downforce cars, having no power steering wheel, getting ripped out of your hands or preventing it from getting ripped out of your hands at some of these crazy tracks that we go to has been going on for a while. Love the last part of the question, Damien, of is anyone looking at a way to prevent them? Because I do think about that, right? There there are some drivers, the veterans who've been doing this a while, not saying they are able to prevent all blisters, but over time, dealing with it long enough, they come up with some methods of let me put a little bit of this tape here or this little bit of something there and maybe softens it a little bit. But I, I was wondering the same thing after St. Pete of like, no one's going to make a million dollars off of it, but it seems like there's something there for someone with an interest to come up, develop something uh, that would allow drivers to not rip the skin off of their palms during a race. 
who's going to step up and volunteer to be the person to provide that answer. All right, uh, we're going to mash the throttle a lot and try and charge through. We're going for volume here. Uh, let's see how many we can get through without me completely sucking. Ricky Zagata, MP, some of the cars are hitting the rev limiter on the front stretch. Was that an unanticipated result of a draft plus push, plus, plus push to pass? resulting in higher engine RPMs or a simulation and setup miss. A little bit of everything there uh, as the answer, Ricky. Yes, uh, there's certainly simulation and really good software tools available to predict and pick the best gearing solutions. There's still no like AI, IBM Watson perfect uh, thing that, press the old tell me the good gears button and it says these are the ratios there are nothing finer still a little bit of i don't want to say guessing because most of the guesswork's been taken out but there's always a little bit of hedging of well i don't know should we go up a tooth down a tooth here there can you stretch this a little bit longer in this gear at this corner is this going to help you um we go a little shorter here you know there's the human element is always going to ensure that there's some form of gearing choice variability. And so keep in mind, there's wing settings on the cars. There are changes in ambient conditions, density of air and a variety of other things that can change downforce figures. Not a ton, but you know, a little bit, you know, uh, wheel spin could be a little bit of an issue where you're ripping through a gear if your tires aren't uh, lasting as long as you would hope. Uh, and you're all of a sudden rowing through the gears faster and, and finding that you are maxed out in top gear a little bit sooner than expected or desired. And whether you have that draft or you're on push to pass, you might just not have anything left. Uh, a lot of ways to not be perfect and... I'd say most teams do a really good job of it not being an issue. But yeah, you do see from time to time, hear from time to time, where you go, oh boy, I wish you had a little bit more. The reason that our team did not win, our Thomas Knapp Motorsports general racing team, did not win the uh, Texas, whatever it was, 500 in 1998, is because we made a error on choosing our top gear and the car was brutally fast and the thing that kept us from passing billy boat and winning the race is we did not have a tall enough top gear to get by him and having watched the in-car video many times and just rude the mistake you see greg flying out of turn four, upshifting and whatnot, get to that top gear in the draft, chasing Billy, and you then hear the motor going, just an electronic rev limiter saying no, uh, all because we had gotten into that limiter because we did not have a tall enough top gear, and we were dragging that proverbial parachute too soon get really close but not close enough can't get by 
all because of a gearing mistake. I don't remember who made that mistake. Could have been me. Could have been our man Tom Knapp. Could have. Been, I don't know. Um, but I do know that if not for that mistake in Top Gear, uh, the little team that was really overperforming that came out of Indy Lights and didn't know a whole lot about oval racing had never won a race after it folded, or at the time it folded. I'm confident saying we would have had one win. So uh, I know of which I know of the pain of which we speak. Robbie Bergren. Marshall, after watching some of the 2012 through 2015 races, the 10 push to pass allocation process seemed to give a lot more drama than the current you have X number of seconds of push to pass that can be used. Do you agree or disagree? Million percent agree, Robbie. And I appreciate not only the question, but your solidifying something that was floating around in my brain, but I hadn't been able to fully solidify. Yeah, the, hey, you have a big number of push to pass, and it doesn't look like many, if any, of the drivers ever get to the number zero. Like, you know, hey, the winner didn't need much, or even the people having a bad day. Like, the people who really, we expected you to be on pole or close, and you qualified last. Like, those are the ones that are going to tear up all their push to pass. Got it. We know that part. But where it's meant to be some sort of assistive tool, a little bit performative as well, right? Hey, why do we have push to pass to put on a show? Because we feel that without it, we might not have a lot of passing. I love the idea of going back to a fixed number. All right. Hey, instead of seconds, I mean, we're going to determine how many seconds a push to pass usage is worth but instead of just this big number you can use as much as you want whenever you want it or as little as you hey i wanted three seconds here all right okay well you know cool i love the you got a limited number it's kind of push to pass roulette where you're whatever how many you got in the chamber six ten whatever uh i like i don't know why i like the number eight but i like the number eight maybe six though maybe that's even closer look you are going to give you an opportunity to try and help to get by that person. I'm not giving you 50 seconds with each push. It's, you know, five, it's seven, whatever the number is. But you get six of them. You got to determine when is the best time to use them. I love this switch, Robbie. Uh, I need to remember to mention this to Jay Fry. I'm sure he's been told this a thousand times, but still, the... There's a level of strategy with the old process that is totally lacking right now. Like the, he's on the push to pass. She's on the push to pass. Like that used to be a thing because it had meaning. Now it's like, yeah, do whatever you want. And you got a lot of it. So like, don't worry about it. Go, go press, 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 have fun, whatever. It's become a non thing. If you're going to have it, it's meant to add a little bit of drama and spice things up a bit. I love your thinking, brother. Let's bring it back to, all right, yes. And it's a small number of how many times you get to use it, and you don't get a super long amount of time once you have it. So truly consider these as precious, precious things. that We just need to make that happen. Uh, Cade Fulling. You are one of a couple folks asking about Alejandro Rossi. Uh, 
MP, is it too early to start hitting the panic button on Rossi's season? Uh, funny, when I spoke with Michael Andretti today for that uh, Colton Hurd F1 story, uh, he just mentioned about needing to get the dark cloud uh, to leave Rossi alone. I'm like, that cartoon anvil you guys have got, I mean, that thing, it, it, it refuses to leave y'all. Uh, one of your drivers is always getting hit by it, and uh, I think he laughed, I remember. Uh, anyways, uh, Cade goes on to say he really seems like this winless streak is starting to get to him. Uh, his turning into Graham Rahal. Oh, he turned into him, did he? All right. Reminded me more of something we would have seen from a frustrated Will Power from a, a few past seasons. Since I'm a huge Rossi fan, but he really seems far removed from the championship contender he was in 2018 and 2019. Interesting. Interesting take here, Cade, on the the amount of anger, the amount of aggression in the Tiger we're used to seeing. I will tell you the reaction to the Ray Hall clash, as I think a few others. Yeah, uh, I'll, let me read Andrew Drybelbus's uh, note here too, which speaks to it as well. And I had the same same reaction, Andrew. So should we start calling Alexander Rossi Captain Positivity going forward? Who is that guy in the post race interview, searching for the bright spots and choosing not to express frustration and or place blame on other drivers or his team? Is certainly a new look for him. I love you, Andrew. Don't don't believe otherwise. Um, yeah. So coming back to Cade's point, driven by your observation, is really strange. That was weird. Uh, of course, every person evolves. Hopefully, you know, changes, becomes better, develops new ways of living and thinking and all that kind of stuff. So has Aunt Alexander done that? Has he, you know, reached a higher status of, I don't know, we'll just pretend he's Buddhist. He's not. Um, but, you know, is this a little bit of, of Kumbaya, Yoga Matt, Rossi going on here? I don't know, but it's weird because I expect him to be red-faced and fighting back ways to MF somebody when asked about it. Um, that was just, again, as a person, provided that's like a state of evolution he's reached, I'm stoked for him. Mr. Angry, though, um, that's the guy that I, I feel like is going to get the best out of himself course what do i know i'm not him i'm just saying externally like when i see a pissed off alexander rossi i'm like wow whether it's visually over a radio whatever when he seems like he's on the boil like watch out (laughs) just watch out bad news is coming your way um let me just spin this out you mentioned willpower cade as I've documented many times on the show before, Will Powers, our guest, by the way, tomorrow. Can't wait to uh, spend some time with DJ Willie P. As I mentioned about Will many times before, he would try and change his approach coming into a new season year after year after year. And it wasn't by chance. It was fully intentional, fully mapped out, planned out, articulated, and so on. And it was so much in the vein of, well, last year I did too much of this. I leaned too far in this direction. 
uh, I was too aggressive. I was too soft. I was over analytical. I wasn't analytical enough. I was this, I was that, uh, I didn't hug enough, uh, puppies. I don't know. And he'd find something that he thought he didn't do enough of the previous year, make changes, not to incorporate that thing into what he was doing that was working, but kind of abandon the thing that was working in favor of changing to go about things in the way he felt he missed. And therefore, if I go hardcore at the thing that I didn't do that I believe led to me not winning the championship, well, that change of approach is going to get me there. And then that thing wouldn't happen and he'd change in a different direction. And it was this thing of like, bouncing around here to there to the other place and like from one year to the next it was never the same it wasn't too uncommon for will at you know whatever the halfway point or wherever it was in the season where he changed his approach for him to say screw it this isn't working i'm going back to the old one and it didn't necessarily improve fortunes We've seen a more consistent version of Will in that regard in recent years. Not saying he doesn't try and add a little bit, do something a little bit different, but he's gone away from the, I didn't win a championship last year, so therefore I failed, so therefore my approach was a failure, therefore I need to have a different approach that hasn't failed yet. So maybe therefore that's, the way I get to the Holy land and he did win the championship in 2014, but just saying there's been a different approach. And while it hasn't always netted everything that he'd hoped, I realize he hasn't followed up with a second championship that mental consistency. Hey, okay. I've done this long enough to figure out who I am, what works best for me. Of course, I'm always going to evolve and develop and try and improve, but the core me not going away from that. And hey, the guy sitting second in the championship right now and has just got a new contract in hand would say that's a good thing. I'm not claiming Alexander's changed anything about himself. Again, I'm not him. Just saying that I was put off a little bit by the happy uh, yoga pants guy uh, talking about the crash. That's, uh, I don't, that's just not a guy I'm familiar with. So had a not great, 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 great start to the year. Obviously, Barber wasn't terrible by any means, but just, you know, if the guy's not on the podium, you know, he's not exactly celebrating. Uh, also, you know, the guy's not 100% wired to be holding 16th in the championship right now and happy about it. So what I don't know, because we didn't get a chance to see all of it by any means at Barber, strategy call took him out of, being in a truly competitive position at the end of the race clash with Ray Hall, obviously ruined his chances of good finish on Sunday. I don't know if we've seen the unencumbered go kick ass, take names, Rossi that we're accustomed to. If he has decided to change his approach, be less kill everything at all times guy, maybe that could be an improvement and a positive evolution. Just saying that through two races so far, I don't feel like we've had a good picture of if he has changed approaches, 
if that is something that is going to break through, start getting some more of those victories and go get that first championship, which, uh, I mean, he absolutely uh, will have here before too long. I mean, come on, that's just being realistic. Uh, let's go to Justin Holmes. Says, congrats on your vaccine. Thank you. I got both shots now and uh, minor, super minor side effects. The first one, the second one would say minor initially. Really strange though, because the second night, third night, when that, yeah, Saturday night, Sunday night would have been second night, third night. Like, I don't know what happened or has been happening, and it's also been happening during the day, but it's like I'm going through menopause. Like, the hot flashes, and they're not flashes. They're like you wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, gross, I'm sweating like you know what, and that never happens to me like that. At uh, Anyways, you probably don't want to know this stuff, but you said congratulations, so I felt the need to share. Um Getting through it, though. Got the fan on, though, right now while I'm recording the podcast. So how stupid is that? Uh, You ask about Rossi. You are wondering, is he putting too much pressure on himself? Is that hurting himself inside the car? All just circumstantial. Go back to the circumstantial part. I know that we covered off the majority of uh, this subject, Justin, but I like the question about pressure. I don't think Alexander knows how to exist without putting pressure on himself. Hey, are there other IndyCar drivers that do that? Yes. Uh, Scott Dixon, Joseph Newgarden, Pato O'Ward, um, Alex Pillow, Sebastian Bourdais, Ryan Hunter Ray, James Hinchcliffe. Every, all of them put immense pressure onto their shoulders. Some, though, are better at not having it override their entire selves maybe again a little tiny window into something that i may not even be seeing correctly but it seemed like the responding to the crash with ray hall guy seemed like not as fixated and driven by internal making diamonds type pressure dude uh who we've seen for uh, a number of years now uh we are going to bill gray asking a question that I think it's a perfect summary. And I know a lot of you uh, have, if not said it on the good old social medias, might have thought it. Uh, I was impressed by Jimmy Jordan. I was about to say Jimmy Jordan. Oh, that's delightfully stupid. I was impressed by Jimmy Johnson's pace in Barber and St. Pete. But, as my father always said, ignore everything before the butt. But three out of the five yellows this year have been for Jimmy's solo spins. Would or could IndyCar penalize the number 48 car if this trend continues through the whole season? It's a phenomenal topic to open up here, Bill. I'm going to spend not much time on it, not because I don't want to, but again, this show would be 11 hours long uh, if I spent all the time I wanted to with everything. There is this thing where there are specific penalties put in place during sessions. Race is also a session, but there are some very specific penalties that they've come up with. 
you cause a local yellow during qualifying or you go off and stall somewhere, you know, they're going to tow you out of the way. You're not going to get to continue if you're, you're stalled like Hinch, as I was educated by our pal Davey First at IndyCar. Um, when he went off and stalled at Barber and qualifying, uh, why didn't they just fire him up and let him go? Well, they changed the rule and said, hey, uh, if you do that, you're done in qualifying. Hey, if you bring out a local yellow, it doesn't have to be a full course yellow, but if you bring out a local yellow, uh, you know, rate, keep moving up. If it's a red or whatever, you know, big level of escalation. But long story short, if you do that in qualifying, even just a local yellow and you spin and then you get going again, whatever, but you cause yellow, you possibly impede someone. Well, you're going to lose that fastest lap in the race. That's where things get to be a little bit different though. And I know I'm probably just stating everything you already know, Bill, but I'm unaware of any mechanisms within the rules. Of course, every sporting league seemingly has some sort of clause that says, look, we could kind of make it up if we want to, if we feel it's in our best interest. But there's nothing in the race that I know of that says, hey, we just feel like you're kind of being a little unsafe or unskilled or careless or whatever it is. And yeah, you spun on your own, you nosed into the tires and, you know, just you, you're, you're messing things up too much. I'm unaware of like a specific, here's the penalty for being a nuisance in the race. Do they have the ability to black flag him? Give him a drive through, give him a, they don't really have a stop and system like you do in sports cars, uh, stop and hold, you know, st- uh, or stop and go stop plus name the amount of seconds. Like that's not so much of an IndyCar thing, but could they absolutely say, dude, uh, we're going to pit you, have you chat for a moment with a pit steward. Um, and let's try and figure out what it is that's going wrong here and whether you should continue to play. You know, I got to believe that IndyCar has a lot of options. It can make available to itself. If they feel Jimmy or any other driver, uh, is becoming a growing problem in this regard to your point. There've been three solo spins slash problems. I don't believe he's involved anyone else in them it's kind of been all you know self-harm if you want to put it that way so there's that penalty that comes with that hey you just nosed into the tires and you know it's going to take a little while and you're going to suffer and you're wherever you're running you aren't running there now that that's kind of the built-in penalty that comes with things little bit of a harder thing to acknowledge here bill with this specific driver and, you know, he was just on the show over the weekend. You know, you might have figured out if you listened to it, uh, you know, uh, pretty good guy. Um, heart's in the right place. Really, truly trying as, as hard as he can to be as good as he can, as quickly as he can. But it's not going to happen this year. Nonetheless, here's the uncomfortable thing that a lot of folks have mentioned. I can't disagree with all of it. But it's the, hey, um, is this the Jimmy Johnson racing series plus a cast of 23 supporting 
actors that are maybe not really top bill or the big reason for us to do this thing? Is this a Jimmy Johnson show and we're all just kind of, you know, uh, folks sitting on the side? Uh, are we just, you know, holding the guy's water bottle and, you know, getting them bonbons and whatnot? You know, I, none of this is aimed at Jimmy, right? He's not the guy directing the show. He's not the guy doing any, you know, he's a guy driving the car. But if we're just talking about some of the complaints that we've gotten about, hey, uh, there's other people here and they win the races and they're going to be in the championship and they're up and coming or they're whatever they are. But hey, uh, can we talk a little bit more about the people who are putting on the, the true show, show, show that we're enjoying? Hard to argue that. And so what we see, I don't know if this is going to change this year or at any point in time, but what it seems like we need to acknowledge, and it makes me sad, how much do we wish the Indy Racing League and then it's renamed self as the IndyCar Series, what we now know as the NTT IndyCar Series. How much do we wish over the last, what are we talking, 15 years, 10? I don't know how many, but what has Jimmy Johnson and his presence in IndyCar revealed to us? This is the, it's a sad thing. Again, all of you, I'm sure, thought this, heard it, written it, said it to a friend, whatever. Just was having this conversation with uh, with a very dear friend today. He was mentioning how frustrated he's become at the fact that, you know, uh, no matter how Jimmy is doing in terms of actually competing in the race, the broadcast seemed to be so heavily skewed towards him. And if it's just him because they're talking about him or the fact that again talking about the yellows here and there being attention brought there an undue amount of coverage for jimmy um when the others maybe deserve the lion's share of it we of course know why the coverage goes to him biggest name in the series one of the biggest names in motor racing in north america maybe the world again you know pick the top 10 names, 15 names, whatever in motor racing in the world, probably throw Jimmy's name in there. But it's just a bit of a conviction, Bill. And it's sad. And this is not trying to just be negative and blame people. It's just you have to acknowledge reality. The guy who's only done two IndyCar races is so much more famous, better known, and beloved by greater masses of people than any of the stars of IndyCar, the champions of IndyCar, the Indy 500 winners. Of course, James Hinchcliffe, beloved, Tony Kanaan. Again, we know we know who we know. We know our people. We've been here for a long time. We love them, all those things. Man, does Jimmy Johnson's presence and the fact that he's getting so much of the spotlight despite so far doing nothing on track to warrant that spotlight. How much does that show us wasn't done over the last 10 or 15 years to develop stars 
I'm not talking about driving capability stars, right? But to say, hey, oh my gosh, we have some amazing people. Let's put in a concerted effort to market the living poop out of them, to promote the living poop out of them. When they're young, when they're old, when they're mid-career, when they're whatever, we are not letting go of you. Turn to whatever your other favorite sport is, whatever favorite stick and ball thing is. Those ball clubs, those leagues, those you name it. Boy, they don't let up. If someone demonstrates themselves to be special, wow, right? It's just constant. The whole organization is behind promoting that person or those people on their team. In this case, of course, the individual teams do their best to promote their star drivers. We also know in the world of motor racing, it's a little bit of a smaller pond we're in. It's where the big overarching institution that has the wider reach and the dollars and the everything you go i know there's been a lot of changes of people in charge of people who've owned people who've been ceos of this i know there's been constant change with an indycar forever but let's talk the last 10 or 15 years man bill jimmy johnson has confirmed if not offered a pretty damning conviction just by the reaction to him and how much time and space he gets by being here of how much has not been done. As Robin Miller says all the time, Scott Dix can walk down any street in America and go completely unrecognized. How? Joseph Newgarden, you know, take him out of Nashville, I guess, but run down the list. It's the same for all of them. Exclude Indiana, exclude Toronto, uh, exclude a couple little places, but I'm just saying, we, we've known this. It's not a surprise. And I know I said I was going to hit the throttle, but this one just stuck with me like, damn it. I love Jimmy. He's the best guy. Truly, he's the best guy. But man, I wish he didn't instantly dominate our airspace, not because of him being a seven-time champion, but because there's such a massive void of presence and recognition that has been developed with our own stars, which has then made it so easy for Jimmy to just simply arrive and own everything without having to do anything. So none of this is being critical of him, blame. There's nothing negative being said about Jimmy at all. This is all just recognition and confirmation of the massive void that he has stepped into. And so instantly, there's not even a number two. There's not even someone on the same planet as Jimmy. And so recognition-wise, and so what happens? It all goes to uh, that that void gets filled, and here we are. So just saddens me, Bill. Just saddens me to think of all that hasn't been done. Uh, Will Power should be, uh, at least in racing, known by everybody. He is so crazy. He is so funny. I love that everything about that guy and have. Colton Herta, 
how is this kid who is so dynamic in the car and has so much personality and he's not a big yucking and screaming and yelling and showing his teeth all the time guy, but he is so fascinating and has so many unique aspects to himself, his passions, his views, his everything. Like he's as anonymous as a race car driver could be in the, in the greater frame of race car drivers that the average person who follows sports would know. I'm not even talking like the average human being who doesn't really know much about sports, but can rattle off LeBron James, Tom Brady, blah, 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 and, right? Some of the big names, Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah, we don't, we don't even got one. Not even one. Ah! Ross Porter, MP, the French fry is a Foyt car. Sixth in points. thought it was seventh, but I don't know. I think you're right. Uh, with two top tens start the season, I couldn't be happier. It says, other than the obvious aspect of Seb's driving talent, what do we see as the biggest contributing factor to the team's impressive pace? It says, by the way, super bum, you won't be at Indy this year. I owe you a tenderloin and a beer. You owe me nothing, Ross. But why don't you let me buy you a tenderloin and a beer? That would make me super happy. Um... And I hope that your ongoing battle to keep nicotine in the rearview mirror is successful, by the way. I haven't mentioned that in a while, so I apologize. Uh, Cody Oakwood, you mentioned another question I'll get to in a minute. Not all the questions are smiley happy ones. Um, Ross, yours covered this a little bit, but love to touch on it because why not? I'll see if I can do it 30 seconds or less. The team has not had a driver like Sebastian Bourdais in... 20, 30 years, I don't know how long, but nothing, there's been nobody close to Seb with all the things he's capable of bringing. Mike Conway, crazy talented guy, brought a lot. Uh, Takuma Sato brought something. Seb's the full package. The engineering team has gotten way stronger. There was a really solid dedication during the offseason to their engineering R&D program. You combine those three things, you're starting to see real progress develop uh cody oakwood you follow up on sebastian's teammate and this isn't meant well it actually isn't that nice of a question but there's no need for the questions to be nice so you didn't do anything wrong i'm just mentioning uh here we go mp it's been awesome to see the Foyt number 14 car sebastian's running near the front his teammate dalton kellett on the other hand other than bringing money what other relevance does he have with the team? Does the team actually get any worthwhile data from him due to his lack of consistency? Would Foyt be better off just running one full-time car at this point? I have a little bit of a soft spot for Dalton. I often do for racing's biggest underdogs. He is the epitome of a young journeyman. If he was a woman, he'd be a young journeywoman. Uh, Dalton's a young journeyman. His ambition to be a professional top-line race car driver exceeds the natural talent that he possesses. It's not mean, I don't think. I don't think it's being like overly critical. It's kind of the thing that makes folks like me sit here talking to microphones, not be folks that are out there driving race cars like Dalton Kellett. Dalton is far more talented than I am or ever will be. Like night and day, not even like different. Again, we talk planets. 
Totally different planet. Could never do what Dalton Kellett does. Ever, 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 ever. That's what separates Dalton from myself, most other people who've driven race cars at some point in time, but certainly not professionally. But where things get a little bit different is when you get into the pro leagues, you find out that, yes, the big monsters are very, very different, and they have talent that is unlike uh, even really highly skilled race car drivers. And so that's where a guy like Dalton just has found and knows that he doesn't have the same talent as everyone else. And he's okay with that. He has the money, family money, family success that allows him to be an IndyCar driver. And he's living that dream. So like, that's the dream I would have. And I think most of us would have imagine if we could have as much training as Dalton and the funding to do it to one day ascend to IndyCar. We would all get there and say, this is amazing, and I'm here, and I can't believe I'm on the same track with name all the other drivers, but they are different than I am. They have that last little bit of talent that I don't. And that's okay. That just means he's not a space alien crazy person who can do this stuff. Almost all of us on the planet cannot. Uh, But the bigger point here is what relevance does he have within the team without Dalton Kellett in that second entry we don't have Sebastian Bourdais in the first um, the overall funding there is what helps keep the team alive keeps the R&D makes the R&D possible makes the staffing improvements possible everything gets better with Dalton at the team it's just not a it's not an opinion it is a fact remove Dalton from the team we don't have Sebastian Bourdais driving the number 14 AJ Foyt Chevy. Now, I know that they found sponsors for Seb's car, all those things. I'm sure they're continuing to look for more money. But when you have the solid baseline of a Kellett, that's where everything else becomes possible. Your point about data, yeah, there's not much that can be shared there. Maybe at a speedway where you're flat out and, you know, uh, it's more the vehicle than the driver, sure. But pretty much everywhere else, that's maybe the one area where, yeah, got to admit that Seb's on an island and he'll go as far as he can get them. But uh, unless Dalton's getting in the way, being a nuisance and whatever else, I always give folks like Dalton a pass or as much as a pass as uh, they you know, warrant. And in this case, he's a valuable contributor to that team and the series. He's also a really good kid, like a really good kid as well. So if you might not have the respect for him as an IndyCar driver, I'd just say follow a little bit of his social media. If you don't get a feel for some of the stuff that he does, and I think you might find he's actually a really good kid. Tim Riley, you ask, what happened to Alex Pillow? So you may miss this, but what happened? He says he lost 10 plus seconds to the guy in front of him about halfway through the last lap. Uh, then he drove into the pits instead of taking the checkered flag and lost quite a few positions. I got to admit, I don't know, Tim. Uh, I should. Isn't that kind of what I'm here for? Yeah. You know, little admission here. When I see someone's just out of it, Right. They came off the trailer just way out of it. And when that happens, unless there's a little bit of a setup miracle of, all right, we're going to turn the car upside down and see if that works. Usually a team doesn't recover from starting off like, what was it, P20 or something like that. 
in opening practice. Did watch, obviously. Qualifying didn't go super well. Didn't have a whole lot of progression during the race. And, you know, of course, I guess I should track all 24 cars at all times to try and know everything that happened and whatnot. A little bit of an acknowledgement that, you know, you you cheat a little bit and say, okay, I'm going to follow. And if there's something to really pay attention to, I will. But if you really kind of sort of weren't there the whole time and there was a slight change towards the end and you were really even more not there, eh, you know, uh, not something that I'm tracking as a big trend to, uh, to stay on top of. So, but in honor of your question, I have pulled open the lap chart for the race and I am looking for an answer for you. There he is running, what, uh, 13th when the yellow came out on lap 80, which would have been the final yellow, um, the Ed Jones yellow. Where does he go from there? And yeah, I realize that I'm just kind of walking through this during the show instead of hitting pause. Um, yeah, looks like what happens. Uh, he is in 13th through lap 97. Uh, falls down to 14th the following lap. Pits on the final lap. Uh, I'm sorry, the penultimate lap on lap 99 and drops down to 17th. So I don't know. I truly don't. Again, uh, I guess my fault for not reaching out. But when I see someone like that is, you know, in the final stages of a race is way towards the back and there's no way that they're going to move forward. Uh, unless there's some sort of crazy yellow or whatever, I'll admit uh, I just stopped tracking. So I'll find out, though. I just don't have the answer for you here. I suck. All right. I just I don't even need to say I admit it. You know it. Uh, Lance Snyder, uh, Damien, the IndyCar Brit, never heard of you before, and Trip Hazard asking about Connor Daly in general, heat, uh, him overheating. Is he just too hot and sexy? Is that the thing that we finally proved? The man is too sexy can't possibly possibly be cool enough in an indie car um got a article coming out about that in the morning so rather than answer it here i'll take a little bit of a shortcut on time and move to the next round of questions knowing that if you visit racer.com you'll be able to get that answer take another sip daniel summers gill you're taking us towards the finish line here What's your opinion on Aaron McLaren SP season after St. Pete? Seems lackluster so far. Said uh, Rosenquist had a disaster at Barber. Didn't do much at St. Pete. Pato to good qualifying in both rounds, but frustrated with tire issues in the races. 11th and 18th in the standings can't be what they expected. Yeah, rang uh, general manager, no, president, Taylor Kyle today. Didn't hear back often a travel day though so didn't surprise me there want to dig into this a little bit deeper with him daniel so that's why i didn't spend too many words on this in my uh, post-race cool down lap column or whatever the hell they're calling it uh yeah a weird one um we got into this a little bit last week on pato driving style temperament and such there's a lot more to be discussed here. I just want to do a little bit more conversating with the team to uh, fill in some either areas of ignorance 
or get some yes or no's on some thoughts that I have there before putting keyboard to fingers. Uh, Rosie, I just don't understand. Uh, this has just been a weird start for Felix. The making a lot of mistakes at Barber thing. You know, he's not a guy that we saw making a lot of mistakes the first two years. So, you know, whatever. It's not the end of the world, but that was a little strange. The race obviously got wiped out. Um, you know, do you blame him because he had the problem in qualifying? He went off in qualifying, stunted his capabilities in qualifying, had a poor starting position, and then was back in a spot where he could get taken out. Again, of course, you could set all those dominoes up and say, all right, so yeah, that's his fault. Look, who thought Joseph Newgarden, the guy who doesn't make those kinds of mistakes, is going to wipe out? what seemed like half the field. So no, I don't blame Rosie for getting taken out at Barber. Uh, had a little bit of a Mr. Invisible thing going on at St. Pete. They just weren't competitive. I know strategery played a little bit of that in the race. He was one of a handful of folks thinking the, uh, the Rossi, and Ray Hall thing was going to trigger a uh, full course caution, dove into the pits. I think that was Connor's tail as well. That yellow didn't come. The That call ended up setting him back. But it's been weird. There were times with Scott Dixon where it definitely looked like, okay, this guy can not only hang, but they're, you know, all right, we see it. It's just strange to be, I know we're only talking two races, but two races into the year, it's looked like they drive for totally different teams. Um, or it looks like Felix is driving for a smaller team. If you told me that he was with, you know, a Dale Coyne, or a Foyt, or something like that, where you go, hey, you know, we're always happy when we see you punch above your weight, but we know you're not in the ring with the real heavyweights. You go, okay, yeah, sounds about right. It's just strange. So knowing that we have seen so much more from Rosie, I, while surprised like you, Daniel, I just going to have that little pocket in my mind that says we're gonna see the real Rosie here soon and we're gonna forget about those first couple of races overstating the obvious man I really hope that happens because if it doesn't we do have one point of record last season with a rookie, well, granted, they're both rookies, and Pato, what, Pato had seven, eight races, but I'm just saying, first full season in IndyCar for Pato, first anything in IndyCar for Oliver Askew. Pato obviously shined, not at all times, but again, enough to be fourth in the standings, but Pato was the pretty clear top dog. Oliver had some issues matching him on pace at times, made some mistakes, we know about the crashes, the concussion. We know that there are a lot of mitigating the circumstances. Even with those mitigating circumstances, before they even got to the end of the year, they were looking for a replacement. And 
do I think that year two, Oliver Askew would be a pretty darn formidable thing? I do. <laughs> I really do. I cross my fan fingers saying, man, I hope we see Oliver in a Andretti car or something at a couple of races later this year. We can really see him um, in, in the finest version of himself. Just know that in a year that wasn't going well, where I think there might have been much lower expectations for Oliver than there are for Felix, in a year where there, I think, was not nearly as high a set of expectations, he really, truly was out of a job multiple races before the end of the year. He might have, forget the concussion, forget the everything else, forget the Elio coming in, forget the, the, right, forget the needing to put another driver in the car. Um, the overriding point here, a decision had been made. We're not going to keep going with this guy next year. So let's start looking for an upgrade. Can't say that's a hundred percent going to repeat here. It may be zero percent, but I would say that there's been a precedent set that if you are not showing the team what they're looking for, at least based on how last year went, I really hope things go well for Felix because if they don't and doubt creeps in, uh, on the team side as to whether he's their long-term solution. We can at least look to Oliver and go, all right, they're willing to make a change. So the team is tasked with doing the best they can. And so while, of course, some of us would love to see Oliver still there and driving, Whatever it was that they needed to see from him in order to say, you're our guy, you're staying for year two, three, however many else, they didn't see that. Do you blame Oliver 100%? Of course not. Almost doesn't matter where the, quote, blame goes. The people with the money and the decision-making power came to the conclusion, need to make a change. That decision was made well before the season ended. They made that change. I hope Rosie does not find himself in a place where those same people start feeling the same kind of vibe and wondering the same things. Moving on. Daniel Angleton. Marshall, want to get your opinion. Hopefully an appreciation for the way Marcus Erickson has started the season. Feels to me he gets some undue criticism from people starting very strongly this year with two top 10 finishes. Austin Sutton uh, mentioned something similar. Talking about Marcus being able to keep it right up there with Dixon at Barber until the last stint. Do you think Marcus has what it takes to be an IndyCar champion someday? Or is this role just to be a good support driver? I haven't seen anything from Marcus yet. Realize he's two seasons and two races into his IndyCar career. But I haven't seen anything to suggest he is a future champion. Is that a mean thing critical negative what i don't know i don't think so it isn't said that way um i look at rossi and say that guy will be a champion should maybe already be a champion but he's shown us that he can be that guy 
He's just got to tick that final box. We can mention a few others. We know the ones who are, because they are, and we know them, so that makes it easy to mention their names. But I haven't seen this yet from Marcus, but I do believe has improved for sure, um, as Daniel mentioned. Definitely seems like he's taken a step forward. Uh, the amount of positivity and like, yeah, we do feel like there's something special here this year with his uh, number eight program at Canassi. Like it's real. Everybody, even the people who aren't on that card, just on other entries under that tent are like, yeah, there, there's we, the mojo. It's good. So yeah, uh, it is for sure that Marcus brought baggage with him from formula one. There's whatever numbers of just, dickish people who don't feel happy or satisfied with their days unless they take shots at Marcus or run down the list of every single driver uh, saying critical negative things about them. So, you know, the criticism part, people just firing away at Marcus or whomever, like those are the saddest people on the planet. And I don't mean the like, hey, dude, I know you're better than this. You finished ninth, but man, you should have finished seventh. You know, what happened? Why didn't you? Like those quote criticisms, those come from a place of like, hey, you know, I I feel something there. I see there's something there and I'm sad as a fan or whatever that it didn't happen. I'm talking about those folks. I'm talking about the, oh, that person's name was mentioned. Well, you can count on me just kind of the same old story to say the same old crap. Um, it's those people who make me really sad, but I try not to let them make me too sad guys. Cause otherwise I'd be, uh, I'd just be in a permanent state of funk. Uh, I don't know if a champion is, is in his future. He'll let us know Austin, right? I mean, you look at how this year goes, I think if he hasn't shown us something by the end of this season to lead us to believe that, yes, a championship is something that is in the realm of possibilities, it'd be hard to believe it would magically show up in year four or five or otherwise. So haven't seen champion yet. Guy that can win some races, yes. We'll find out if there's more to come, but it does feel like he's on something different this year. There's something going on that only feels positive. Uh, Steve Grinstead, any surprises from the race? Hmm. That's an interesting one. (sighs) Yeah. Um, leave Max Chilton and the Carlin team alone. Bad luck. Oh, hey, Rocky's out there meowing for whatever reason. Yeah, I really like the Carlin team, and I haven't always had the deepest amount of fondness for max but it has certainly changed and grown in recent years and yeah they're they're a team that really like they just feel so familiar to me from so many that i worked with super blue collar super normal people who are trying to do excellent things but just like no airs about them like there if there's a team you want to go have a beer with and it won't be a beer it'd be a pint they're british but go have some pints with and know that you know you're probably going to be waking up with a massive hangover um maybe a tramp stamp 
I don't know why you'd get that tattoo, but it feels like that's a possibility. But just in general, love that team. Hate that they have been so on the receiving end of badness for the first two rounds. So, yeah, it seemed like after uh, Barber not going their way, to have the to really be the only team to have a mechanical failure in the gearbox to go kaput 18 laps in, yeah, that bummed me. Uh, Ed Joris. Oh, this is a fun question of which I can't really answer too much. Now that Penske has re-signed Will Power, is Simon Pagano on the clock for 2022? Oh, is he? Uh, what can I say? That won't go beyond the things that I said that I wouldn't say. Asked multiple people at the team if they could help with a confirmation of whether Simon had been re-signed or was on the list of possibilities of being re-signed or if there was a plan to determine when he would be re-signed or not re-signed. I was unable to get an affirmative answer on anything out of the team that that's by the way not me saying pointing jabbing whatever at the team not at all uh you ask questions you hope you get back an answer doesn't always happen i ask a million of these things a year and you know you get half of them answered sometimes they don't want to answer them sometimes they just don't know um a lot that I'm not going to fill in here just out of respect to private conversations that were held, and I'll just keep it there. Just tell you that my understanding, and it's purely my own feeling. <laughs> I'd tell you if the team told me. I'd tell you if I knew. If I knew, uh, I would tell you if I knew. I don't. They didn't tell me. Um I don't expect them to tell me. I would say he's absolutely still on the clock for whether he is going to be a Penske driver at the end of the year and come back for however many more years. Throw this out to close and move on swiftly. And yes, I realize that we're beyond two hours, but hey, hashtag it is what it is. Thank you, Juan Montoya, from one of my favorite all-time sayings. Put yourself... In this scenario, you are one of two champion drivers, Indy 500 winning drivers for the sport's most successful team. You and the other guy who's done, delivered the same exact things for the team, not as many wins and polls and all that, but again, one guy's been with them for twice as long, whatever. But you've both won the biggest things for this team in the sport. You're both in a position where your contract is up at the end of the year. Everything's matchy-matchy. You learn during the race weekend that the other guy's been re-signed. You haven't. You need to be re-signed. You haven't. How'd that make you feel? Probably not too good. Um, I'm inserting a lot of things that I suppose are being felt, but I'm just trying to think of, hey, I know these guys, and I'm also, funnily enough, human like them too and have some of the same emotions. Um, 
wow, this is not, you know, I'm not picking on anybody here, but I am saying like, look, if you got two people who are sweating a little bit about whether they get to keep playing the game and they're at an age where like, Hey, if you don't bring them back to the game, you know, the game might be over. I don't know how many other people are going to say, oh, no, come come play it with us. It's a possibility, but, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of open seats that we know of looking ahead with serious teams. When you got two people hoping for the same thing and one of them finds out one of them feels like the two people at the Mr. Mrs. America beauty pageant one of, but granted, I never realized that the uh, Academy Awards just happened. Was it the Academy Awards? Golden Globe? I don't know. Whatever it was. Um, of course, they put up the box with like the six people who are up for whatever. But it's the same kind of thing. One of them finds out that they're the big winner in this thing that everybody wants. And then what do you see from the Mrs. Runner-Up, Mr. Runner-Up, the other ones who didn't get the, the Oscar... Uh, you get that gritted teeth smile. Yay, you were right? Feeling robbed, deprived. Why did you get what I deserve? Why didn't they give it to me? You're not better than me. I am better than you. Like, just run the gamut. Run the gamut of emotions of, hey, we're both here wanting the same thing, needing the same thing. Not only did I not know the other guy got signed, but why didn't i get signed am i going to is there a message being sent i don't know and who knows we're recording this on a monday night could we find out tuesday morning hey guess who got the call and got signed all that could happen but boy being rudder up at the old penske pageant oh that has to sting uh tim falkowitz says marshall second time asking and then you make a really good threat our good pal tim falkwitz thank you tim still nothing but love for you for uh, putting our questions together for more than a year uh asked will the f1 race in miami have any impact on st pete or future indycar races in florida don't know of any other future races in terms of indycar and florida i would say no in terms of miami just because of the distance between the two knowing that we're talking hours and hours between them I would say very different locales, very different vibes. So I can't see how a Miami race would take anything away from a St. Pete race. So I don't think so, my man. Uh, Jermaine Tuttle, MP as much as a root for Connor Daly. It's hard not to wonder if his IndyCar days are numbered. He just can't seem to put together a full top 10 weekend on a road or street course. In the amount of younger and seemingly more talented drivers keeps growing should we be nervous for his future on the grid? Um, yeah, he's had a not great first two weekends. Some of them, again, known, not his fault. Uh, you know, there's, yeah, hasn't been great for sure on a number of fronts. I know, we know, I believe we, most of us know he's capable of much more. crack this open for a brief second then we'll close it and move on been awesome to see renus run p6 and then p9 so far this season 
just seems like of the reputations that Ed Carpenter Racing needs to shake. And the reputation comes from instances of things happening, right? Not just like, oh, it's a rumor of a reputation, but like, oh, things happen which built this reputation. The team just has too many recent years of, hey, things were going kind of well for Driver X in the race, and then something went totally sideways and screwed their race. Their team owner has had a brutal time on ovals where he excels, where that's like his his happy place and special place, where he gets to beat up on others. Ed hasn't had that happen in a long time, and it's terrible and it's silly and there's no reason for it, and I hope it all gets fixed and changed immediately. I told him the same when I saw him recently. Like, dude, I just want to see you have a great year. Connor, seems like, yeah, the things were going well until story. They've kind of been consistent with him so far at ECR. Renus, obviously, is a rookie last year. It's a rookie. You can't get too crazy on what you expect from him and did he live up or not. Like, you know, let's let's not be too mental there. How many times, though, last year was there a... Well, yeah, but then this thing happened, whether it was a pit stop or a strategy thing or he made a mistake or a whatever. It's too many times where you go, man, the guy at that team has had something not triple awesome happen. I look back to Connor, specifically to your question, though, young Mr. Darwin, and say, I hear you. Um, and I know that, you know, his rookie season with Dale Coyne, first full season, you know, it had a lot of downs, not as many ups, but driving for Dale Coyne, which we, I might say is a smaller team. I'm not saying ECR is a giant team, just flooded with money and they've got, I'm not saying that, but... You know, I would say in the pecking order, we think of Dale Coyne as being definitely in 2016 a smaller team with a lot less in terms of resources. And yeah, he finished 18th in the standings. It wasn't great, but also maybe it wasn't a total shocker. He had a lot of, if not last place, pretty darn close, whether it was a mechanical failure or a crash. Like a third of the season was kind of last place finishes that ruined where he ended up in the standings. But at that tiny team in his first full season, he'd done like, what, five or six total races before? So now here actually going to a lot of tracks for the first time in an IndyCar. Uh, what I just remember, like three, two, three, four, six places. I think he had a podium uh, at Detroit. Uh, I know, I don't think it was a podium, but was like, man, crazy fast and had a really good finish at Watkins Glen. Like, Again, I know that we're talking a little more sporadic, but for a rookie at one of the two smallest teams in the series at that point in time, uh, you know, there was some serious like, hey, this kid's putting in some performances. Went to Foyt the next year. Foyt, bit of a disaster. Same kind of finish, I think, around 18th or so. You know, didn't have as many top five-ish, top six type performances, but... I just say, I don't think the window's closing. 
I don't think there's doubt as to his capability. I know that when he was with Dale Coyne as a rookie, there was certainly like more instances of like, hey, look at that place that he's running on track and the finish that came with it than we saw last year. Uh, obviously, with Carlin, there was some pretty stellar stuff on the ovals. So road and street courses and ovals, he has shown us he can do very, very, very well at. I'm just hoping that overall... What we've seen so far with Renus, um, with that sixth and that ninth, we know there's a potential within this team to run well that we haven't seen, you know, that kind of stuff so consistently of late. Renus is showing us that, yes, they have made a definite step forward. Connor's just had two not great weekends. So, yeah, I know it's hard to strategize, well, how do we have great weekends since we've had two not great weekends. Obviously, they went into both expecting great, but if Connor stops being an IndyCar driver, it's because he no longer has the sponsors to be an IndyCar driver. Um, that is what I would say. So uh, we need to be cognizant of the fact that he's at a place in his career um, where bringing sponsorship is needed. And as long as as he is able to, I would not, I don't know. I don't know if I would worry so much. Uh, As long as he's making sponsors happy, I'm sure he will. Uh, I'd say he's going to be okay. Where do we go for the last couple of things here? Uh, Kyle Donnelly, you ask about a rib eating contest. Who in the IndyCar paddock wins a Texas barbecue rib eating competition? Uh, you said let's sp- split it by division, drivers, team, whatever, officials. Um, my friends at LET Photographic, they can eat. They win. End of question. Mark Graham, you ask about where Roger Penske might be during a broadcast or during a race these days since he's in the ownership role, not on a timing stand. I don't know. Want to hear a fact that makes me a little bit sad? I have not been to an IndyCar race while Roger Penske has owned the series. So I don't know because I haven't seen it. I know he's told me, well, I'm not going to be with the team. It says I might be, I don't know, somewhere. But uh, he says I'll have, when I last asked him that question, he said I'll have to figure it out. But um, I hope to be able to answer that question from in-person knowledge gained maybe later in the year. Uh, Bob Gravel, you say not a question. But your interview with Alex Pillow took me from knowing nothing about him to being a big fan. He was such a joyful personality. I'm so excited to see him become dominant. Well, I hope he becomes dominant. Uh, but, yeah, so happy for him. And, oh boy, uh, I just want to see places like Texas and others be friendlier than St. Pete were for him. Uh, Kiwi Chong, how you doing? Kiwi, I think it's been just a little while. and. Hopefully I didn't murder your last name. If so, it's my fault. says, uh, I quite enjoyed your, quote, as it happened section published uh, in Racer, I think referring to the uh, race report. says, I like the narrative style recap of the race and feel that it is the type of story that we don't get to see very often in sports journalism. Well, that's overly kind, Kiwi. Here's another little backgrounder that doesn't matter. I've always written those. I've just not decided i think until now this year to polish them up and use them uh in what gets followed with a race report and so why have i written them but not use them well it's 
more of a a lot of things happen in a race and you need to try and track as much as you can if you're going to report on it so i don't do like a lap by lap here's what happened that would be wacky to me at least so just try and keep a narrative of, of what happens as it happens because when you're trying to report on this within you know 30 minutes of the checkered flag not able to really go back and watch the whole race and pick up all these things it's just like a all right well try and write it as it happens and so anyways i don't know if there's any value in it but if there's at least one person here that enjoys it well that's cool man uh try and do that for qualifying as well it's full admission it's for me <laughs> it's it's for me uh but try and polish it up so maybe uh you and who knows one or two others might like it uh jamie carr marshall first best off doing your wife thanks man question about the broadcast while paul tracy is now in for the races do you think pt was put on a short leash or is he just maturing um I mean, Paul hasn't changed as a person to my knowledge. Um, I, again, I haven't seen him in person for a little while now, but we have a lot of mutual friends, and I've heard nothing to indicate that he is um, now raising money for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, 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 what? Uh, listening to uh, liberalradio.com. Um, you know, I mean, I'm kidding a little bit here but you know i don't believe pt has changed his views on life uh changed espousing his political societal ethnic or just you name it the things that he has shown us who he is uh away from the microphone i don't believe any of that's changed nor do i believe he would have to change those things in order to keep his job um just don't do the things that make people ask us to fire you i think that's the thing he's probably been placed on a little bit of a short leash like please we live in an era where you you just don't want to force us to have to react of course we get into a longer discussion of well hasn't it happened once or twice and that didn't they choose to not act again whatever that's not me that's them i that people's hiring choices talk to them um yeah short leash i would say for sure i think the we're gonna have you for six races maybe seven it's a pretty clear indicator of this relationship is not going in the right direction that's the i don't want to divorce but i I, i'm gonna go stay with my parents or you're sleeping on the couch um you know that that's when you get the we need a break thing if you don't stop and reflect and go, okay, what can I do to get us back to the place we were at? You know, uh, I think that's a normal reaction, right? So in for all the races, I thought the job, not like I, my opinion matters, but just sharing as someone who kind of watches and has opinions, uh, thought he did another awesome job on Sunday uh, throughout the weekend. You know, uh, I do pay attention to try and hear like, hey, what's coming out? What What is of value and whatnot and i thought he did another excellent job i'm sure there are things that i maybe missed or others could complain about but um i would say that short leash has probably been put in place to the point of like cool we're gonna have you for all the races now but i would assume there was probably also a just as we changed your full-time tenure last year to barely even part-time this year 
we're going to go back to full time, but let's please remember that change is certainly always optional. So uh, hopefully there's no reason for that to change, and he continues to give us good stuff. All right, where are we going here? Um, Brian Borelli got a great question about oversteer. Uh, says it seemed to hear PT and Townsend mention oversteer a lot more on the twisties, the road courses. Uh, if that's the case, why are ovals more prone to understeer or road courses more to oversteer due to the changing terrains? Um, that's a, that's a great question, Brian. And for those of us who do this and know a lot of this stuff, uh, it's just kind of a known thing, but your question reminds me that, man, there's just so many, uh, we're always learning and there, we always have folks who are, you know, new and, or just wanting to know more. So I appreciate you asking a question that honestly, I've never seen asked before. So oversteer road and street courses. Absolutely. It's part of the constant changing of direction left and right driver style preference setup chassis setup will certainly uh, be something that could contribute to this tire rear tires being uh, worn down and degradation happening it's not something that ever every driver wants or prefers but it is certainly something we see more often on road and street courses uh, with the constant changing of directions going on left right high speed low speed just You know, uh, there's a lot of instances where such things could happen. Say, well, then why couldn't it also happen on an oval? It could. Granted, we're turning left four times a lap, uh, three at Pocono, I guess, three-ish. Why don't we see oversteer on ovals? That's because from a setup standpoint, mechanical setup and aerodynamic setup, it is something that is not desired because if you are having to correct a slide at 200, 230, 2 whatever on more than one occasion <laughs> uh, during a race, uh, A, you've pooped your pants, you've gone tingle as well. Um, the penalty for a slide on an oval is so high and i saying slide i should be saying oversteer i apologize the margin of error is so great uh not great narrow this is i'm sorry it's truly i apologize i should probably shut off the show it's 10 19 right now haven't had dinner by the way um brian there is just no margin for it and so that is why teams do not try and set the cars up to have the rear sliding going in a circle, <laughs> on a circle, into a wall. Oh, that is bad. And things happen so fast that if you consider, what were we looking at last weekend? Um, car coming out of the first turn, not a hairpin, but again, it, it's a tight-ish radius corner. Brake, turn in, trying to get back on throttle as quickly as you can. Uh, get into the throttle a little bit earlier, more aggressive than oh, you should. Oops, back end snaps out a little bit, but you catch it. You got space to the left, right? Ample space to the left. It's a little bit of a slide, but, you know, not crazy. Tokyo Drift, smoky burnout. 
attach it, you keep going. It's happening at a lower rate of speed and, again, far more predictable and easy to deal with. If you're having to apply counter steer to the car on a high-speed oval, oh, you're going at such a rate of speed where these got most of them are going to catch it, but it is happening at such a high rate of speed that, oh, boy, are you going to catch all of it? Are you going to over correct and then tip the car into swinging back the opposite way a tank slapper at which point you're pretty much in the wall it is so much easier just say easier easier safer and preferred to go somewhere between neutral to light understeer to manage the cars tracking around the corners by lifting off the throttle slightly to get the front to either settle or move slightly to the left and away from the wall than to set it up the opposite way where the front is planted and you're having to do super roasty burnout opposite lock at 2.30 at turn one or whatever the number is and hold it that way. The percentage odds of doing that more than once are super slim, not repeatable lap after lap after lap without having a massive crash. The, it, there's just too much pendulum swinging motion in the car that you're not going to be able to manage. So that's why you don't see cars being set up for that. Sometimes through mistakes of going the wrong way on a wing change or a tire pressure or whatever it might be, weight jacker goes wacky, wrong changes to anti-roll bars you can absolutely have a car that starts is predicated to oversteer uh predicated predilection i don't know what the word is could happen and so you then see a lot of work going on in the cockpit either doing adjustments or just adjusting driving style to not allow the rear of the car to slide so that's why totally normal call it Pretty darn easy to manage on your average road and street course. That's normal, natural thing. On an oval, huge price to pay, my friend. Uh, Austin Sutton, uh, you said during the coverage of the Indy Lights race one at St. Pete, they mentioned that a driver, I think it was Bogle, jumped straight from USF 2000 straight to Lights. It's me wondering, is there any licensing requirements to move up the road to Indy Ladder? Uh, or is it just if you can pay, you can play? Um, I mean, if you can afford it, that's obviously an important part. Austin, thanks for asking this, by the way. Great question. There's no, you must do complete freshman year in high school before you can become a sophomore, junior, senior. None of that on the road to Indy. Uh, you could go straight to lights. You could go straight to wherever. You can jump from here to there. Uh, it's all about proving that you're capable of being there and capable of not crashing making a ass out of yourself and so on so you can try and start wherever you want they're just not going to license you to be there if you show that you really shouldn't so there you go um bob gravel yes what's my favorite thing about texas um i think i mentioned a story not too long ago in the podcast about there being great food options just right outside the track funny how the fat guy always had fa- always has fond memories of food but i think i might have mentioned a story about um 
just being invited to come have lunch with uh, Mike Hall and his wife Melinda, and he said some other friends. I don't know. This must have been ten years ago, whatever it was. This is you know uh, noon, whatever on race day when the race starts at like eight or nine. So truly, there's just nothing to do. And show up, and it was Tony George and all of his sisters and whatnot. And Tony George hates me, so it was like, hey Mike, and hey look who it is. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was kind of fun. Um, have, I think I mentioned in that little last time I mentioned it, believe it or not, Tony didn't say hi or talk to me or pretty much acknowledge that I lived. So ah, the norm going to close on this. I, I mean, you, yeah. So I said, we're going to try and do two hours. Sorry, y'all. But, but like I said, you don't have to listen to all of it. You can hit the pause button and stop whenever you want. There's a ton of great stuff here that I'm not getting to. Um, I apologize y'all. I got so much time. I'm giving you as much as I can. Uh, we're at 10:25. Uh, all right. So no driven anything for y'all this week. Although we're just an hour and a half away from the start of the anniversary, but we're going to close on a question from another one from Jordan. Uh, says 20 years ago this week, I set out to Texas Motor Speedway to see the insanely fast Renards, Lowell's, and Penske's, the Firestone Firehawk 600. In my stomach was an impending feeling of doom that I might watch one of the drivers perish that day. The report over the race being canceled was instantly reliving. Um, as I knew the race drivers, um, all right, I'm trying to, sorry, brother. Uh, the report over the race being canceled was instantly reliving. As I knew the drivers were the same. I think you meant relieving, but no worries. Uh, later on, I dwelled on the disappointment in cart teams, manufacturers, and whatnot, not being able to find a compromise to allow a race to happen that day, reduce speeds, plus the poor planning that did not foresee the issue to give adequate time for a compromise to be found. It says, what are your thoughts on the uh, Firestone Firehawk 600, and have you ever gone to the track with a similar pit in your stomach? <sighs> Wasn't there for this race. I was working in the uh, syphilis-ridden other series, the Indy Racing League. Kidding. I did enjoy my time there, so I make fun of it because we got to make fun of it. But uh, I wasn't there for this one. I was there for the race that happened a little bit after. Uh, There's another 20th anniversary piece coming this week about Davey Hamilton's crash at the Earl race at Texas. Um, But, yeah, did follow it pretty intently at the time, and I've been on the phone with a lot of people to put together a story here uh, hopefully by the end of the week, about this ill-fated race. I don't know how much in that story you're going to read that's totally brand new. It's been well chronicled. That's one good thing. There's a lot of minutiae out there. I think I've mentioned that in some of what I've started to write. So, you know, if you're looking for the encyclopedic every single thing that happened, you know, uh, I'm not trying to do that because it's already been done, and I don't know. I don't feel the need to, to rehash uh what's been spoken about which i read uh track president eddie gossage mentioned today uh he said a motorsports reporter called him and he did not feel the need to rehash things i was that reporter um and if you look back five years ago eddie rehashed the whole thing the difference being it was all a one-sided narrative that made him look like the hero but that's okay um didn't want to take my call where it might not be all softballs. Uh, it does make me sad, Jordan, about what happened. I think that's an obvious reaction. The desire for me to put together this 
20th anniversary retrospective though. And I know that I keep sharing some, you know, you said thoughts on it and whatnot. Um, the reason I'm trying to frame this around what I'm doing and trying to write is my original motivation and enduring motivation to put this together on this 20th anniversary. There's certainly wanting to talk about some of the ramifications, the get the preparations for it that were not adequate. Uh, some of the decisions that were wrong. Also, there's a lot of people pointing fingers at one another in the opposite direction. So that's some of the legacy here to cover, but the real desire, which I hope will come through in what I write, I could probably do a crappy job though. And maybe I'll fail is this is really the only time I can remember in my adult lifetime where the limits of the human, everything were pushed beyond their capabilities. We've had experiences where cars were not good matches for the track they were at based on the configurations, right? Indy 2015, wasn't it? 2015, six, whatever the year was where we had, what, three flights, you know, a crash, go into the wall at an angle at whatever, and you get up in the air, and Tino Belli and Delara and some really smart folks said, hey, we're going to come up with fixes, and they did. Amazing. So in that configuration, there was a problem, and they hit the pause button on the practice, tried to come up with some short-term fixes, came up with some longer-term stuff that worked, but that's nothing compared to Texas 2001, where the vehicles outstretched what the human body could endure. I just it we've it eh, eh? <laughs> it hasn't happened uh again i'm sure there's some example where somewhere it's happened somewhere i'm not saying it's never happened ever in motorized competition but just saying that this is really one of those oh my goodness remember the time that the cars were too much for humans to endure that is what i hold as the enduring point of memory with this event whoa that happened and so that's been a lot of the direction that i've taken things with those that i've interviewed and i hope that you will enjoy that um i'm going to get to that as soon as i can i was actually meant to make progress on that tonight but i've failed there yet again so a lot of failure uh recently friends anyways I, you know, yeah, people did a lot of dumb things and it failed for those reasons. We got it. We know it. Whatever percent of what I end up writing is going to get into that because it's part of looking back after 20 years. A lot of people have failed doing a lot of things, though. So that's not maybe the bigger takeaway. To me, it's the holy cow for a couple of days in 2001 with these vehicles that we love, we got to a place where the strongest, bravest, most insane heroes were defeated by cars at this specific track. Now we'll get into some of the stuff too, about could we have slowed them down and all that something that plenty of folks know about the story as well, but 
some BS there going on for sure. Yes, it could have happened, but no agreement was found. But just to think that there was a time that existed happens to be 20 years ago where the drivers we celebrate and hail as unlike any other, what we do in IndyCar is unlike anything else in any other form of racing with all the different disciplines that we hit and you have to excel at to be among the best, much less become a champion and a hero, unlike anything in any other form of racing with so many different things asked at so many different types of tracks. And with some of these all-time greats, there was a weekend where they were defeated by an invisible enemy. It's just crazy. So... Uh, that's what I think of. That's what comes to mind, Jordan. Um, I have been very angry once or twice before at a track. Um, and I apologize that I'm forgetting what it was, but yeah, I have popped off really hard more than once about why are we here? Why are we doing this? And I feel like it happened at least once in the IRL days, early IRL days, with the uh, the rock-solid gearboxes where everybody's getting knocked out. Not just knocked out, but, like, so you not only have a concussion, but, like, you're not going to be driving for a while because, like, you, your eyes are pointed to the back of your head, and holy crap. Um, remember that, uh, I think, this wasn't fear-based. There was a lot of fear involved at, at Texas in 2001 with CART, but, uh, I mean, I think there was a question when there were fatalities when I was at the Charlotte IRL race in, was it 97? I don't remember. I think it was 97, um, where it seemed like there was a question for a little while as to whether we would continue racing. And I remember, like, I don't give an F who says what. Maybe it was 99. I apologize uh, not remembering. But, you know, being very loud and I think being told, a team owner or whatever, like, hey, Keep it, keep it down. You know, I mean, I was just acting out on raw emotion, which wasn't smart, but, um, you know, why are we still here? What is there to race for? Like we've just killed fans. Um, you know, some people have that mindset of like, Hey, you know, why would we keep going while others are like, Hey, you wimp, we came here to race. Let's do what we came here to do. So, um, not necessarily pits in my stomach, but yeah, just that charged sense of something could go wrong or has gone wrong. And what is all, what is wrong with y'all for not saying let's stop. So I need to stop on the topic of stopping. Um, I hope you enjoyed this as always. Most of it was probably garbage. I do appreciate you sending in the questions do appreciate those of you who realize that wow we've covered a lot but uh i would rather do one long episode than have to try and do two almost as longish episodes this week just not working out for me uh time and availability wise i'm marshall pruitt this is a marshall pruitt podcast brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com speak to you tomorrow with dj willie p